Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the sixth and final class of The Princess Bride. Um, tonight, we are going to finish the film. Uh, I don't think we're going to make it uh, on uh, to Buttercup's baby. I really don't think that's going to happen. Um, uh, we immediately have people clamoring for it. Um, Buttercup's baby is long, strange, and complicated. Um, I, uh, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> I certainly can't squeeze it in tonight. Um, I, I think, I think uh, I'm going to have to skip Buttercup's baby. I apologize, but I think, I think, I think that's going to have to, that's going to have to happen. Um, uh, I mean, it's kind of interesting because it kind of, you know, it, it, I mean, the way in which it comes back and interacts with the endings again, as we were looking at, but, uh, um, uh, anyway, after all of our conversations about this, you guys, uh, should be equipped to, uh, to read, uh, Buttercup's Baby and, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. My, my deepest, most humble apologies. We're totally not going to be able to get to Buttercup's Baby. But we are going to get through the movie tonight, and we have a lot of movie to talk about, So, uh, and I would definitely want to get there. But first, I would like to announce the official winners uh, and uh, the beginning of our next classes. So we have now officially elected... The uh, uh, the the next two books that we're going to be discussing in the Mythgard Academy, and they are the suspense. It's awful, isn't it? The Lays of Beleriand by J.R.R. Tolkien and Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell. Um, uh, I'm very excited to talk about both of these things. Uh, so, uh, the, we're going to start with Eliza Beleriand, um, because that came in first and, uh, because it continues our pattern of alternating Tolkien texts. Uh, so for those of you, especially for those of you who, uh, did the, uh, uh the Book of Lost Tales with us, if you haven't, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to those classes and, and, and read the Book of Lost Tales. Really, really fascinating stuff. Um, in the Lays of Beleriand, we'll be looking at the um, sort of the, the the further development when Tolkien turns and goes back to really dig into develop some of the stories that he had written uh, in the Book of Lost Tales and kind of take them when he sort of sets aside the idea of the full story collection and instead just decides to sort of immerse himself uh, in some of those stories. In particular, of course, uh, the story of Turin Turambar uh, and the story of uh, of Baron and Luthien, and he gives them longer, uh, longer and uh, uh, poetic treatment than we see anywhere else. Um, and it's really, uh, and it's, it's, it's really, really cool, really great stuff. So that should be really fun to talk about. Um, so we're going to talk about the ways of Beleriand. Then we're going to talk about, uh, uh, Strange and Norrell. And, uh, we will talk about the TV adaptation, which has just come out. That seems very timely. So we'll definitely talk about that. Um, and for those of you who are wondering, um, those of you who are not within our electorate here, um, 
It is not merely that uh, uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell has won on the, you know, that that's a sort of impetu- some kind of impetuous pick based on the fact that the TV series is now currently running. Um, that is not merely a bandwagon pick. That book has been uh, among, uh, that's been in the discussion from the Mythgard Academy for several rounds now. Uh, so it's definitely, um, that's definitely something that has been uh, 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 sort of brewing. That's That's been... Several of the books that we've discussed have kind of lived there. Uh, uh, the, uh, the Princess Bride, uh, Watership Down, Ender's Game uh, were sort of always a bridesmaid and never a bride for a long time. Uh, so uh, it's, it's, uh, it's been, it's happens to work out the timing um, that uh, we finally now get uh, a Strange and Norrell right when. Uh, right when that show's come come out. So that'll be really interesting uh, to do. So Laser Valerian first, then Strange and Norrell after that. Those will be our next two books and will take us through into the fall uh, and up towards our next campaign. So, uh, Patrick, I would be deeply shocked if uh, we never talked about The Hitchhiker's Guide. Uh, I suspect the time is going to come. I would also say um, American Gods was really close. Um uh, that was, uh, it was, uh, very tight there. Um, and that's also another one that has been in the conversation for a long time, pretty much from the beginning that's been, uh, on the table. I suspect the time's going to come for, uh, Neil Gaiman's American Gods too. So anyway, so I'm excited. Um, and Jennifer, boy, till we have faces, I totally, I mean, like so many of the finalists, uh, uh, that, uh, you know, or you know, of the of the the sort of the slate the panel, uh, Bram Stoker, you know, one of my you know Dracula, one of my favorite books. Um, Till we have faces, you know, greatest piece of fiction C.S. Lewis ever wrote. Uh, you know, one of the most transcendent modern myths ever told. It's fantastic. So absolutely, there's so much good stuff there, and I think that we're gonna um, uh, we're gonna we're definitely gonna have fun with those uh, as we uh, as we go through. Oh, Brandon, there's an upcoming TV show on American Gods? Hadn't heard of that. Not surprised, but I did not know that. Interesting. Yeah, so that'll, that'll be interesting to... I'm glad I didn't win this time, then. We sort of save that for later on, when we can talk about that at the same time. Um, yeah, yeah, cool. Awesome. Uh, excellent. Okay. Um, yeah, interesting. No, I, I, I don't I don't follow Gaiman very closely, uh, so I haven't really been uh, uh, privy to any of the stuff about American Gods, but... Uh, uh, but cool, yeah, all right. Um, I don't know if timing will work out there as flawlessly as it has with uh, Strange and Norrell, but uh, but that'll be that'll be really cool. So okay, Jonathan Spencer says it was green lighted for 2016 series. Okay, all right. Oh, so we'd have to hold out for a while then uh, to to get it, but uh, it's okay. It's okay. Maybe we could do it and check back in with it or something. Um, anyway, that's the big news. That's the big announcement. Um, uh, much, much smaller announcements. That is uh, just sort of a reminder about things that are underway. Um, uh, don't forget that this week is our second episode of the new Silmarillion film project. Uh, we are going to be coming back, uh, uh, making, uh, talking about a few of the suggestions that some people have made about the frame narrative, which we talked about last time, and then moving on to those big questions about the depiction of Valar and the Iluvatar and of uh, uh, of of magic and music, so we're going to be getting to that stuff 
on Friday. Um, it should be a lot of fun. So that's Friday. At, uh, the live sh uh, show will be being recorded at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, Friday morning, same time as the Riddles in the Dark show used to be. Um, and that will be this coming Friday in two days. And then uh, uh, almost immediately afterwards at 12.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time um, will be my next uh, uh, Lotro stream. Um, so, And uh, uh, episode one is already posted. Um, you can find it on the Tolkien Professor uh, podcast feed. Um, so that it uh, was released there a few days back. So uh, more than a few days back, actually. Several days back. Um, so it's definitely available. Um, and you... Uh, you should be able to get it. So, um, so very good, very good. Um, yes, Neil, there is an enforced ending for the Film Film podcast. You're gonna, you're, you're gonna be shocked. You're gonna be so shocked at how disciplined I'm gonna be. It's gonna be, it's gonna be awesome. But speaking of uh, discipline, uh, we should talk about the Princess Bride. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Lynn is asking a quick question about Jonathan Strange. What's my opinion about? She's not read the book yet, and says, "What's her opinion about seeing the series before reading the book?" I can't ever bear that thought, really. I try. I mean, in fact, like for instance, um, I've been meaning to. I haven't gotten around to reading it yet, but I, I've been meaning to read the Hunger Games trilogy for a while. I just, you know, I've been interested to read it, but I've never gotten around to it. And so I haven't seen any of the films because I won't let, I won't let myself watch the films until I've read the book. So I'm putting those off too. I do plan to both read the books and watch the films at some point, uh, but I but I haven't bothered with either one yet. Thomas Except the Princess Bride. I didn't even know it was a book. It was and anyway, I was what, thirteen? It's not my fault. Um but <laughs> but anyway, uh yeah, yeah, certainly I, I, I would advocate I would advocate uh um uh, reading the book first. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, okay. Um, let's talk about the film. So, what I want to do tonight, so you'll remember that last time we didn't quite get through um, talking about um, uh, the end of the Fesic and Inigo, and especially Inigo's story. And we had just gotten to the confrontation with Count Rugen. Um, then I had to uh, uh, cause us to wait in horrible suspense for a full week uh, before we talked about the end of that. And so I think having done so, I'm going to keep the horrible suspense going for a little while longer and integrate the discussion of the end of Inigo's story into the end of the rest of the story, because actually I think that that um, comes across rather well, um, rather than doing what I was originally going to do. Which, you know, because you know, at the end, remember at the end of the film, how it kind of goes back and forth between Inigo's fight with Count Rugen and uh, Buttercup and Wesley's story. I had been going to isolate those as I was talking about those two things separately, um, but having by chance, gotten to the confrontation uh, at the end there without actually discussing it, I decided to reintegrate it so that we can look at the entire flow. So we're basically going to be watching the end of the movie in clips, uh, uh, skipping barely a second of, uh, you know, the last several minutes, uh, you know, the last maybe ten minutes of the film. But that's okay, um, because I'm going to be really interested to see what do we think about where this film ends. And, uh, and I want to be trying... I mean, of course... Throughout talking about the book, I was trying not to talk about the movie, and I was asking us not to do continual comparisons. Therefore, of course, it would be boorish of me to say, now don't talk about the book, because we've been waiting to do comparisons, uh, so surely, if not now, then when. But, um, 
But at the same time, I do want to be careful to kind of give the film some room of its own. That is just kind of not just merely to be noticing, oh, this is different, that's different, that's different, but really to be trying to um, perceive the story that the film is creating on its own. So I, I do want to make sure that we don't lose focus of that, but we certainly will be making comparisons as well as we go. So here's what's going to work. I'm going to show a bunch of clips tonight, and um, I'm going to try to shut up while the films are playing, uh, And but I want you guys to go ahead and start making observations, stuff that you notice, things that you, you know, things, comparisons or contrasts from the book, um, uh, you know, and we're, we're, we're going to look at the frame, then we're going to look at basically sort of the core fairy tale story, the Buttercup and Wesley true love story in the film, uh, uh, you know, in bits from beginning to end. And again, just tell, make observations. Tell me the stuff that you notice, even if you can't think of a, a you know, a really sort of uh, you know witty and clever uh, conclusion to draw from it. Anything that you notice that you think is important, go ahead and tell me, and you'll have uh, time to start the typing of those things while the clip is running, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. Okay. So first, let's look at the uh, the way the frame works. So this is right after uh, uh, the boy, I, I shall be referring to him as the boy, um, is uh, just complaining to his mom. He's really not excited about his, his grandpa coming uh, because, and he's just gotten his cheek pinched as he predicted that he would. And that's the look he's exchanging with his mom. That's the see, I told you he was going to pinch my cheek look. I think I'll leave you two pals alone. I brought you a special present. What is it? Open it up. A book? That's right. When I was your age, television was called books. And this is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. Is it got any sports in it? Are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture... Revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. Doesn't sound too bad. I'll try and stay awake. Oh, well, thank you very much. Very nicely. Your vote of confidence is overwhelming. All right. The Prince's Bride. By S. Morgenstern, Chapter One. Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Our favorite pastimes were riding her horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. Isn't that a wonderful beginning? Yeah, it's really good. Okay. Okay, good observations. I agree. I was noticing... Uh, you know, I, I was really... Uh, my attention was really drawn to several of the things that you guys have pointed to. Several of you are pointing to the emphasis that the film places on the distance between the boy and the grandpa, right? Um, the fact that, you know, that obviously they're not on the same wavelength, right? You know, he reaches out and pinches the, the, the kid's cheek again right before this, this present clip which seems clearly to be a sign of affection on his part, but of course, rather than it, receiving it as a sign of affection, it really annoys the kid, right? So that's, that's, that's the one example that, you know, one example that we get, um, but lots of the physical, of the sort of the visual cues that we get emphasize the gap between them, right? Um, uh, and uh, uh, yeah, Arthur, television was called books, right? Um, 
the indication of the generation gap. We we see the kid playing uh, playing like Atari when he comes in. Right, he's playing a, he's playing a, a a baseball game. I can't remember the name of that game, but I actually used to play that game. I remember it, um, the one that he's playing there at the beginning. Um, but anyhow, it's, you know, so we see him playing video game, you know, doing this new kid newfangled thing in the late eighties, and then you know the father comes in with a book, right? And, and the expression when he opens it, a book, right? Um, but despite that, we see the grandpa trying to bridge that gap, right? This is a special book, right? So he, he uh, you know, and he talks to the, sort of the gen, you know, I read it to your father and, you know, and, and, and today I'm going to read it to you. Um, so we can see him trying to, 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 the grandfather trying to bridge that gap, right? Despite the lack of enthusiasm of the kid. Um, so, uh, so that's clearly one major dynamic that is, that is very centrally established there in the first scene at the very beginning. Good now, several uh, um, several other several of the others of you um, are uh, emphasizing, of course, the connection between the grandfather and the barber. Right? Um, we where we are placed within this frame does seem to be in the barber frame. Right? Um, and that's a really important thing. We talked about that, right? We talked about that as this sort of additional level. We were, of course, especially emphasizing it when we got to the end. Uh, and I was sort of, I, you know, we were, I, I isolated in my slides and, and in our discussion, the barber's ending, Morgenstern's ending, and the narrator's ending. So we were already kind of separating the barber as narrator from Goldman as narrator, um, even though we only heard about the barber through Goldman, of course. Um, here we're just cutting to the chase, right? We're going straight to the barber, without um, without going through the Goldman narrator. So that that level of narration has been completely removed, but it's different, right? It's not many of the things that we see in the barber that were a really important element of the barber, and clearly a part of that really sort of moving, affectionate picture that we keep getting of, you know, the memories of his father reading to him. Um, uh, uh, first, uh, let's see, uh, Caves, oh yeah, Caves, the, 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 the grandpa has no trouble with English, right? We don't get that language thing. This is not a native Florinese guy whose English isn't so good struggling uh, to read an English version of The Princess Bride, right? Um, so that's that's an interesting element that's gone. I mean, you can call it a simplification, but see, uh, this is um, if we were to say that, and I'm not saying that we would say that, but if we were to say, oh well, they just cut that stuff out because they needed to simplify it for the film. See what we just did? That's critfic. That is a classic pure example of critfic, where we perceive a thing going on, and instead of thinking about the thing, instead of instead of looking at how that, you know, the, the effect of that choice and what it does, we make up a, bi- a, 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 a sort of a, a biographical explanation of it and stop thinking about it, right? Um, we wave our hands at it and say, well, this is probably what they were thinking when they did that. So, obviously, we're not going to do that kind of thing, right? Um, and uh, it's really tempting, when doing this kind of thing, when looking at at this, you know, when you're when you're looking at, for some reason, movies seem to inspire critfic like five times as much as books. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe it's because the the due to the additional constraints of filmmaking, that is the compressed time frame and the 
the limitations of the the physical medium, um, you know, the actors they're working with and their special effects budget and all that kind of thing. Um, we're more conscious of those kinds of limitations, and so we're more it's, we're more ready, willing, eager to sort of attribute the choices that we see being made to those kinds of limitations and not think about them as creative choices. I don't know. But anyhow. Um, uh, just a little side note there. Carolyn points out uh, uh, an interesting point that uh, she said she never noticed before the book he's reading from. It has a beautifully elaborate letter to start the passage. The book looks old and well-thumbed. Yeah, I agree, Carolyn. It is a really nice touch. And, and sort of adds to the puzzlement of the boy, right? Not only am I getting a book, I'm getting an old and boring-looking book, right? <laughs> What's up with this? Um, yeah, good. Patrick, we don't get any references to Columbia academics. Yes, that whole... The whole question of satire is off the table, right? At least, I mean, it's never raised. Um, this is just uh, a grandfather reading to his grandson, and what do we get? What do we get from them? The, the, you know, there's a reason I, I included this last... This this sequence, right? You know, his reading of the first few sentences, um, and a, a, after which he interjects, "Isn't that a wonderful beginning?" Right? Uh, and we get that sort of sarcastic response from the boy. Yeah, yeah, it's really good, right? Um, notice the grandfather from the beginning is trying to engage. First, he tries to excite him about it on his own terms, right? Sort of appeals to you know, lists all the sports that it includes, right? But then, immediately after having done that, having having basically said, oh yeah, no, trust me, this is your kind of book. He then, after reading the first few sentences, which seem to be demonstrably not his kind of book, right? Um, he tries to pull him out of his own expectations and get, you know, uh, isn't that a wonderful beginning, right? Tries to engage him with the fairy tale frame, right? With the fairy tale story. Um, to get to try to get the boy to engage himself with that. Uh, it doesn't seem to be working yet so far, right? But we see that dynamic happening there at the beginning, okay? Um, uh, good. Sarah Powell, I agree. Uh, Sarah says there's no added wrinkle of the story's author being long-winded, satirical, or just a bad writer. Yeah, the, I mean, of course we can't prove that the grandfather in the frame is not omitting large chunks in the same way that apparently the barber did. Um, but Sarah, I mean, apart from knowing the book, we have absolutely no reason to suspect that, right? Um, uh, so, so yeah, that it's certainly, at the very least, that's, that's a non-issue. Um, the movie itself leads us to understand we're just hearing, you know, we're just getting this, you know, that he's just reading this straight out of the book. This is what the book uh, is really like. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, yeah, Karita says the snark factor is lo much lower in the movie. Yes, yes, I agree. Um, good. Thomas Johnson says that uh, Fred Savage's character can act as a surrogate for young viewers contemporaneous to the book's release in the way young Goldman does not for book readers in 1973. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Thomas, you think about the effect of the Goldman narrator mitigating that, you know, t putting us at one remove uh, from the uh, uh, from the the experience of of getting this as a as as an adult, right? Or 
from his getting it as a child. The narrator frames the whole story explicitly as, you know, and we talked about this earlier on, an adult attempting in some way to recreate or recapture this experience of childhood and perhaps in some way to pass that on. And we see him addressing kids, of course. But there still doesn't seem to me any realistic sense in which children are designed to be a target of this book, right? I mean, it's clearly a book. The frame, I think, really places it as a book from one adult to another. Um, The people who are supposed to be able to connect with this, the people whom he's talking to, are people who will sympathize not with the position of the kid, either young Goldman or even his fat son, right? But rather of the husband and parent, right? The person who is in a in a marriage that has no love and you know are worried about their kid and failing to connect with their kid. I mean that's the that's the 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 place in which we're we're put. That's that's the way in which we're being. That seems to be the audience that's being appealed to within Goldman's frame in the book. But I agree with you. The frame here seems to. It's not that I think this necessarily makes it a kids' movie, right? But um, but that's you know the 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 frame has put us in the position. I mean, I even like the way that the uh, the way that it's sort of visually done here, right? Um, we move into the frame of the story from the kid's perspective, right? I mean, we are almost exactly. We're not seeing it at exactly the same angle, but we are watching the grandpa read as if we were the kid on the bed, right? Or at least as if we're sitting next to the kid on the bed. Uh, and being immersed in this. We are certainly not coming alongside the reader, coming alongside the adult, um, and looking at that. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, okay, yeah, Patrick Summer said, as a kid uh, of the 80s, the frame drew me in a lot uh, and gave a point of reference. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, if you look at all of the, like, 1980s icons that surround him in this room, right? I mean, you got the you got the Cheetos, you got his Empire Strikes Back cup or you know glass, which he probably got. Oh, I should remember. I live too far out in the sticks to get one myself. I, I forget which chain of fast food restaurants gave out these Empire Strikes Back tumblers. Um, uh. I got an E.T. one, but I didn't have an Empire Strikes Back one, because I missed the Empire Strikes Back, because as I said, I was living in the sticks. But we've got, to, look, he's got a Captain America figurine, he's got a He-Man, which is up here behind his head. Of course, we saw him playing Atari at the beginning. Um, uh, anyway, it's just, you know, yes, we have uh, all of those things. Burger King! I was suspecting it was Burger King, Jonathan. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyhow, so, uh, uh, <laughs> okay, so, Let's uh, let's move on to the to the next one here. I'm kind of jumping around a bit here because again, first I want to just think about and focus on the frame. Then we'll come back to the sort of the arc of Wesleyan Buttercup's actual story. Do you know what that sound is, Highness? Those are the shrinking eels. If you don't believe me, just wait. They always grow louder when they're about to feed on human flesh. If you swim back now, I promise no harm will come to you. I doubt you'll get such an offer from the eel. She doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. What? The eel doesn't get her. I'm explaining to you because you look nervous. 
I was nervous. Well, maybe I was a little bit concerned, but that's not the same thing. Because we can stop now if you want. No, you could read a little bit more if you want. Do you know what that sound is, Highness? Those are the shrieking eels. Past that, Grandpa. You read it already. Oh, oh my goodness, I did. I'm sorry. Beg your pardon. All right, all right. Let's see. She was in the water. The eel was coming after her. She was frightened. The eel started to charge her. And then... Put her down! Just put her down! All right. Yes, of course, as several of you have pointed out, one of the most striking elements of this uh, coming from the book is the change from sharks to eels. Now, the the shrieking eels are... There's a brief reference to them. That is, we hear that, like, when uh, they're going to try to meet up... That is, when Wesley and Buttercup, before the fire swamp, are going to try to meet up with the ship... Uh, with the the pirate ship Revenge, they uh, they say he's probably going to be waiting for us in you know the the, the bay of the shrieking eels or something. This is a reference to the fact that there's the, there are eel infested waters nearby. That we're not really told about that. The choice to replace the sharks, um, who are the uh, 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 feature in this scene in the book, with eels, isn't a really interesting difference, right? Um, it's uh, it's a really interesting choice. Several of you are pointing out that eels are 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 are, are cooler and more interesting and uh, uh, creepier than sharks. All true. Um, one thing that I would you know the what the little sort of conclusion I would draw from that is that the movie seems to be placing us in a more unashamedly sort of fantastical context, right? Um, saying that there are sharks in the water and that you're going to attract them by throwing blood into it, though it's very calculating, right, on Vizzini's part, though it's a little bit weird. He's cutting himself now, right? Doesn't seem like a really terrifying thing to say. Um, but anyway, it does, it's, it's more, um, uh, it's more, it's more uh, fantastical, right? It gets us into a different world more thoroughly. And that's interesting, isn't it? Um, we don't... That that seems to be an impulse which is quite different from uh, the impulse that we see most of the way through the book, really. Um, but, uh... Okay, uh... uh more. So, okay, so we get, um... Uh, yeah, Sarah King, I think, you know, she doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time is possibly my, is one of my very favorite lines from the whole book, uh, or the whole film, rather. Um, I just love that the grandfather's interaction. Now, thinking back to the frame, what we were talking about with the frame... Oh, and I apologize. Um, somebody had mentioned right when I started this clip, um, uh, Nancy, of course, had pointed out uh, the boy's Walter Payton jersey, which is, of course, very timely. Uh, it was 1986, uh, as I remember very well, because by 86, I was already living up here in New England. And, of course, you'll remember that it was the Patriots who were absolutely demolished by the Bears uh, in that Super Bowl. Um, so, no, 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 no. 86 was the Bears Super Bowl, I mean, Michael, not the film. The film was 87, so it was right afterwards. Um, but uh, anyway, Super Bowl, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, it's it was uh, it was it was it was it was a memorable experience. Walter Payton, of course. Um, it could just be that they live in Chicago, but again, people are people. It's uh, 
people would 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 know it. Now, um, we see, of course, the boy getting becoming engaged with the story, right? Um, you know, I'm telling you because you looked a little nervous, right? And his sort of distinction between nervous and concerned, right? We see the boy trying to pass it off, but we, you know, but the, this this is the first real intervention. You know, we've, okay, it's not the first intervention. We've come back to it a couple times before. Uh, but this is a major interruption. It's the longest stretch we've gone without hearing the, the boy and the father, at least in the background, right? And um, uh, we get... It interrupting this action scene. One of the f- the first action scene, unless you count the kidnapping of uh, of um, of of Buttercup. Um, but uh, but we have yet yeah, Thomas. He the grandson is betraying his emotional investment, despite his intentions of keep of apparent intentions of keeping himself aloof, or at least his skepticism. Um, we see that that the gesture that the grandfather made, his attempt to draw his grandson into this wonderful story, right? You know, they, or rather to the story with a wonderful beginning, right? Is actually working. Um, though, Thomas, as you point out, he is the boy, is trying to maintain a veneer of disinterest, as you say. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. So we see he still is wanting, attempting to maintain that distance, and yet the distance is being really closed. Now, what's the effect of the uh, the in the second interruption, right? The grandfather resumes again uh, and goes back to the shrieking eels, and the boy interrupts and says, "Grandpa, Grandpa, you read that part already." Uh, one thing is, ver- it's very verisimilitudinous, right? Uh, as uh, you know, Daniel, as you said, you sometimes corrected your parents when they lost their place in a book. It does happen, right? Um, so that's one thing. Is t- but again, notice how that too invokes. Uh, this, uh, you know, the frame, the frame of this film sternly rejects being merely a frame, right? That is, it rejects being merely, this is the excuse for telling you the story, um, and insistently is a story of its own, right? And we see sort of the progress and the development of that. We're reminded of this, uh, uh, sort of affectionate moment, but also I think it's, um, uh, it's, the segue back into the story is this sort of reminder of the relationship between the frame and the story. That is, it's a reminder that we're not experiencing this story firsthand, right? I mean, my favorite moment is when, you know, he's reading the same thing again, and we're getting the grandfather's, you know, Peter Falk's voice superimposed over the image of the of the of the story, right? Minus. Those are the shrieking eels. Past that, right? That is, we're being reminded forcibly here. Um, this is a story that that is being. This is the story that's being read to the boy by the grandfather. In that is, in a sense, we're being reminded that what we're seeing here on screen, when we're seeing Buttercup and Vizini and Fezzik and Inigo and Wesley, these actors, that's not real, right? And not just not real in the sense in which all movies are not real, but um, but it's we're not seeing this. It's an imagined thing, right? What's really happening is that this grandfather is reading the book to the kid, and so it invites us to in a sense, maybe even question the stuff that we're seeing, right? Um, to what extent is this, is what we see on the screen 
in fact dependent upon the frame itself. This seems to me uh, to um, um, this seems to me to open some interesting questions. You'll remember that one of the things I was pointing out last time were those moments when the film seems to distance us from it, right? That is to invite us to laugh at what's going on. When we see the obvious bad special effects uh, on Wesley's shoulder. And I still reject uh, any critfic interpretation about low budget or anything. Again, my, my rule of thumb with low budget is if even Monty Python and the Holy Grail could muster better special effects than uh, QED, it's not because of the limitation of the choice was not made because of the limitation of the budget. There must be another explanation. Um, and this, this fits that. I mean, uh, uh, a boar is getting ripped apart by the bunny uh, is more a, a more realistic wound than the wound on Wesley's shoulder. So I, I, I absolutely reject uh, the budgetary argument. Um, and uh, um, anyway... <clears throat> So we get those moments, you know, that we, with the albino that we were looking at, um, and my question was, why D- is this distancing us from it? Do, do we are we being pushed in a different direction from the boy? We see the boy being drawn into the story, and the grandfather deliberately attempting to draw the boy into the story and get him to immerse himself in it. Um, but these moments, in a sense, push us away. If we didn't have this interruption, because of course it can't be denied that it is at the most tense moment in the movie so far that our own engagement with the film is being disrupted by the grandfather. She doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time, right? Um, yeah, the boys. Uh, the the but so what does that do? Well, again, on the one hand, it reminds us of that distance, though it also kind of draws our attention to our own engagement, right? If we find ourselves kind of leaning forward at that moment, we're like, oh, yeah, no, I, you know, and we and we might find ourselves like the boy, kind of tr- trying to, uh, trying to, trying to pass it off. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, Jonathan, that's a wonderful observation. I'm going to come back to that. Um, we get closer, much closer to the end, if I don't remind me. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Sarah Powell says, we're invited to invest, uh, uh, you know, we're to invest in the relationship between the grandfather and grandson more than a disposable frame, and it keeps the fairy tale, f- uh, uh, keeps the fairy tale feel. I agree. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? That by interrupting the, fa- the fairy tale uh, story, by drawing our attention, in a sense, to its artificiality, right? Um, it actually doesn't undermine it, doesn't invite us to laugh at it, but really kind of underscores our investment in it, I think. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, good, good. Well, um, this uh, here I wanted to mention an email I got uh, from uh, uh, a listener, Robert Hubble, who wasn't able to be here last week. Um, but he had a really interesting observation about those passages, like the albino passage, and uh, the, especially the. Remember when we were looking at the 
the the physical comedy in the duel between Inigo and Wesley, um, and the way in which the, what sort of is set up to be this moment of high drama, and then there are all these sort of wild comical moments, which would seem to undermine the drama of the moment, um, and yet uh, don't seem to have that kind of a destructive effect on our relationship with it. Um, Robert had a really interesting observation. He said, um, I'd always seen the primitive special effects in The Princess Bride as being a reflection, albeit a poor one perhaps, of the imagination of the boy uh, played by Savage. I guess a key question is, is the film the representation of the words uh, read by the grandfather, or the imagination of the grandson, or some combination of both? When the sword fight seems over the top with the behind-the-back fighting, the gymnastics, the between-the-legs fighting, uh, I see it as, as being the way a young boy might imagine an incredible sword fight. Uh, when Wesley's wound uh, from the, 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 the rodent of unusual size seems basic and easily washed off, I see it as a boy not comprehending the severity of the attack, nor the length required for a recovery. Um, other thoughts I had, uh, the zoo being missing from the film, could it be that the grandfather skipped over this part, thinking it was too scary, or could he have skipped over it just to hurry the book along? Yeah, and you know, we talked about that a little bit, way in which conceivably the grandfather could be acting uh, as the barber. But I thought that the, 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 the first part of that is really interesting, right? Because, again, this passage really seems to invite it. When we're getting, especially this latter part... Grandpa, you read it already? Oh. The summary? Beg your pardon. All right, all right. Let's see. Uh, Here. She was in the water. The eel was coming after her. She was frightened. The eel started to charge her. And then... Robert asks a great question. Is the film... Is Are the visuals merely translating his words? That is, are, is this straight from him to us? Or is it coming through the boy? Right? Is this trying to capture the boy's imagination of what's going on. I love the idea. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, I, to me it opens up a really kind of complex way of looking at the film, and I'd have to think, I'd have to think the whole thing through a lot more before I really made up my mind about whether I think that that reading works. But I think it's really interesting. Um, uh, yeah, Kate Neville says that she likes the point, um, and that uh, it works also in the second sword fight. In the book, the fight between Inigo and Count Rugen is supposed to be the greater of the two, but in the film, it's quicker and less spectacular because the child needs uh, because the child needs Inigo to get his revenge. You know, perhaps that he he skips over. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, no, I I, um, I like it. Um, yeah, good, interesting. Carolyn Morehouse points out uh, very. Uh, very right, and I hadn't emphasized that before, um, but it's very noticeable. I was looking at it because you can't help but look at it. That is the Santa Claus right here on the wall, um, and uh, that I mean, it's so visually prominent. It's right there between the two of them, right? And we see it in almost every shot uh, of of the grandfather. We we see the Santa Claus in the background, and Carolyn is pointing out how. Uh, um, uh, the uh, Santa being a fantastical character himself as a silent observer of the proceedings, and not only is he himself fantastical, but he is sort of the bringer of fantasy, right? The fulfiller of fantasies, uh, and uh, the 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 kind of parallel that that placement suggests between the grandfather and Santa Claus, um, I think, is 
is is is is kind of interesting. Anyway, there's a lot more to think about that. I just kind of I wanted to to pass that. I thought that was a, a really cool observation, uh, a really cool idea. And I wanted to pass that along, and uh, you know we can kind of be thinking about it as we go along. Um, but uh, anyway, okay. Next uh, next bit. Better speed up here. No, you're alive. If you want, I can fly. I told you I would always come for you. Why didn't you wait for me? Well, you were dead. Death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while. I will never doubt again. There will never be a need. Oh, no. No, please. What is it? What's the matter? They're kissing again. Do we have to hear the kissing part? Someday you may not mind so much. Let's get under the fire swamp. That sounded good. Oh. You're sick. I'll humor you. All right. Um... So what do we see here? Um, notice, of course, that we get the lines that Morgan Stern didn't get, right? All that controversy and that drawn-out uh, uh, frame thing with the address of his publisher, right? Uh, uh, about the the words that they speak to each other upon their reunion. Silently, without any comment, we get them, right? Or some right? Um, that's interesting. And what do we get? Death cannot stop true love. All it can do is delay it for a while. I can't possibly do my eyebrows like Carrie Ellis can do. But, um, uh, anyway, um, so we get this, the, I mean, the, the story of true love, right? That is the heart of this, despite all the, the, you know, the way that the grandfather wants to make it, make it sound like it's about sports, this is a story about true love, right? The movie is emphatically a story about true love. Um, and we see her pledge in response, I will never doubt again, right? Uh, that's, of course, going to be important. We'll come back to that when we talk about the Wesley and Buttercup story. But it's at that moment that we get an interruption. Well, okay, then they start kissing and we get an interruption. And I think the way the interruption works is really, really cool, right? Because on the one hand, we have... <sighs> What is probably uh, sort of the apex, certainly the local apex, it's the cheesiest the film has ever gotten, right? We are um, being uh, asked to now understand that Wesley, who was supposed to be dead, has somehow miraculously, apparently, come back from the dead or, or something. So we get this sudden, you know, you catastrophic turn of the unexpected, okay, well, I mean, you know, unexpected, theoretically, return of Wesley. And... Uh, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, death cannot stop true love. I will never doubt again. There will never be a need. And then we get, no, 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 no. And it's like, whoa, so is the frame then prompting us now to be resistant to this, right? Are we being invited to, to reject this? It's very different from, say, you know, think back to the discussion we had about Buttercup's declaration of love, right? And the way that um, the manner in which Goldman depicts 
uh, Buttercup coming to Wesley's uh, hovel and uh, and declaring her love um, it sort of undermines the whole true love thing, right? That we're kind of chuckling at her expense as we hear her doing this. Um, so it, it, there's with the frame interruption, it seems at first like we're going to get resistance, right? No, like, I don't, like, whatever, I don't, but that's such a bunch of malarkey, right? You can't expect me to buy that true love garbage, right? Life isn't fair, maybe, or something, right? Maybe that's going to be, but no, it's not about that, right? This is about the kissing, right? Um, the way, the, the direction that it goes, the direction that the boy's interruption ends up going seems in its way, I think, to kind of undermine the undermining of the story, Right? If we are feeling any resistance to the story at this point, and again, in as much, you know, this, this seems to work in as much as the boy has already been our kind of mediator, right? Again, we're in his position. Um, this is, this tends to be our viewpoint, more or less. He's not always in the frame, right? But again, we're sitting there next to him, uh, on his bed, uh, listening to the grandfather, right? We're a shared audience with him, um, so anyway, so here he is speaking up for us and resisting this moment, which, you know, this moment of high uh, fantastical drama. And uh, and then instead, our, uh, you know, if we do object in some sense, our sort of our teeth are kind of pulled by now our supporter, our, our spokesperson is now just giving a really... Uh, a really immature response, right? It's just about the kissing. I, I'm not interested in kissing. I, I think that that um, that that works in a very in a very interesting way. Um, yeah. So Kay says so basically the book and the movie are almost diametrical opposites at their cores. <sighs> well, that's one possibility. I mean, you know, it's, I'm going to be interested to see how we think that flies all the way through um but uh but even already when we're not even looking at the core story that that we already seem to uh um that 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 seems to be oh cool sarah powell says uh you're sick i'll humor you uh is uh, a popular quote uh in their family uh, uh, that's good that's good um yeah good good um okay um yeah, Kate Neville says it makes me wonder about Goldman's purpose in the book. Um, uh, you know, are we looking back to take all his satirical comments on romance to be as childish as the boy's, you know, ick response? You know, see, Kate, I don't know. I mean, I am not quite sure where to go. Well, we'll, well I'll come in the end to how I'm not sure where to go at the end. Uh, <laughs> there'll be plenty of time for talking about that when we actually get to the end. Um, uh, one more, and then I want to go back and, and, and look a little bit more at the fairy tale theme. This, of course, is a big one. Okay, two more. Sorry, two that more. very night, and before the following dawn, Buttercup and Humperdinck were married, and at noon she met her subjects again, this time as their queen. My father's final words were... Hold it, hold it, Grandpa. You read that wrong. She doesn't marry Humperdinck, she marries Wesley. I'm just sure of it. After all that Wesley did for her, if she didn't marry him, it wouldn't be fair. Well, who says life is fair? Where is that written? Life isn't always fair. I'm telling you, you're messing up the story. Now get it right. Do you want me to go on with this? Yes. All right, then. No more interruptions. 
At noon, she met her subjects again, this time as their queen. My father's final words were... Um, yeah, the fake-out is quite close to the book. So this is... Uh, the, the occasion is capped. Um, the uh, um, circumstances are interesting, right? The line, life isn't fair, where is that written, right, comes directly from the grandfather. You'll remember this is, the, that, this is probably the biggest deviation that we get from the barber and the grandfather character, right? So far, anyway. Um, and that is, it is emphatically not from the barber and his reading that we get life isn't fair, right? Um, it is outside of that um, it is in his consider. No, it's in his consideration of this moment that we get that um, his reflections upon this moment later on. Um, but uh, but it's certainly not from the mouth of the barber um, that we get that. In fact, if anything, as we saw from the barber's ending in the book, the barber does not seem interested at all in communicating that point. Um, yeah, good. And Philip. Absolutely. What seems to me the most striking thing, unlike young Goldman, the boy is not relieved by the knowledge that life isn't fair. Absolutely. He doesn't want to hear it at all. Um, it is That is, to me, a fascinating downplay. Um, you know, Kay, you want to look at moments where the movie seems to be going in the diametrically opposed uh, direction, right? Um, it's... Uh, this is uh, to me. This seems to almost go there, right? The grandfather says the thing which was the great epiphany for the Goldman narrator, right? Life isn't fair, and he talked about how happy, how satisfied, how almost joyful he was. He could have danced when he heard a grown-up tell him that life wasn't fair, right? Um, and even his, you know, and and the, the his superficial satisfaction with the truth of the fake-out when he gets to it only drew his attention to how deeply unsatisfied in the end he was. Um, not so the boy in the film. Um, he doesn't want to hear it, and it doesn't, and, and seems quite satisfied when he discovers that he is right. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the crown is pretty awesome, isn't it? I do, I do love the, I do love the crown. Anyway, the downplaying of the life is fair thing, uh, or the sort of the, the 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 shift away from the the very large emotional shift surrounding that line in the film, is to me especially fascinating because Goldman, the narrator, absolutely insists that that's the whole point of the whole book, right? This is what he wants you. This is the take-home message, right, kids? You know, when he starts writing to, to directly to child readers for a paragraph, this is what I want you to take from this book, um, and not just this is the most important message from this book, but this is one of the most important messages you'll ever get, right? Throughout the rest of your life, remember Morgan Stern and the lesson that you learned from this book, um, and uh, and the film brings it up, right? Quotes it, and yet seems to move away from it. Similarly, this is really, it's really, really my last frame uh, uh, passage before we get to the end. He's dead. Just says no fire. 
Grandpa, Grandpa, wait, wait. What did Fezzik mean he's dead? I mean, he didn't mean dead. Well, he's only faking, right? You want me to read this or not? Who gets Humperdinck? I don't understand. Who kills Prince Humperdinck? At the end, somebody's got to do it. Is it Inigo who? Nobody. Nobody kills him. He lives. You mean he wins? Jesus, Grandpa, what did you read me this thing for? You know, you, you've been very sick, and you're taking this story very seriously. I think we ought to stop now. No, I, I'm okay. I'm okay. Sit down. All right. Okay. All right, now, let's see. Where were we? Oh, yes. In the pit of despair. Good, good. Um, first of all, did, I, I just noticed in watching this clip uh, this time that uh, the He-Man, Master of the Universe, uh, on the shelf over uh, the boy's left shoulder is lying supine on his back <laughs> during that scene, but he's standing up uh, at other times. Uh, that's kind of funny. Um, and uh, Nancy, yes, I do, I do take... Uh, that the final line, uh, where were we? Ah, yes, the pit of despair, right? Um, that is a sort of a commentary. You notice how he is sort of slyly pointing to the connection between the book and the boy, the, with the emotional states that you know, and the way that they're matching, and the boy now not even pretending to resist anymore, right? Um, we see the vulnerability, the emotional vulnerability of the boy in the initial. Um, you know, outburst, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, Sarah Lagarde points out that the boy believes strongly in the fairy tale ending, even if he hasn't been reading the right sort of books. What a wonderful point, Sarah. Um, here again, we have emphasized. Remember that Goldman's narrator, even when reflecting upon his reception of the book as a child, in a sense downplays that element, Sarah, right? By talking about himself as, you know, this was the beginning of his voracious desire for stories. And so he, he kind of loses, you know, he talks about how much he loves sports, um, and how he had never been a book reader until his father read him The Princess Bride. But then, by spending so much time talking about all the different books he read afterwards, he kind of he kind of buries that point. It's, it, it's not a central focus how this story is basically, is really making a, making a convert of him. But, but Sarah, as you point out more importantly, the boy already has these impulses, right? He it's 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 plain from the, the the frame that we get at the beginning of the story that this boy has not been reading fairy tales, right? This is not the kind of thing that he normally does. Baseball video games are his thing, right? Uh, the Chicago Bears are his th- are, are are his thing. Um, the the fairy tales not his thing, and yet he's got all the right instincts, Sarah. Right? Um, he knows how fairy tales should end, and is outraged when it seems not to be going the way that it's supposed to be going. I agree, that's really interesting. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Excellent. Um, <laughs> Patrick Summer says it's a good thing he's not reading Gur Martin to the kid. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Nancy Fosberg says it's actually interesting that he's a Bears fan. Uh, they had won, right? Uh, and that, now the characters in the story are not winning, and he's having trouble with that. Um, yeah, the, uh, 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 the, the Super Bowl shuffle has a happy ending, right? It needn't have done. It mightn't have done, but it did. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Good. Interesting. Sarah King points out that it's interesting that for the boy, a good ending is not Buttercup and Wesley reuniting, but someone getting Humperdinck. Um, yeah, yeah, that is interesting. I, I don't know that it would necessarily that he sees it one in exclusion of the other, but rather, at the very least, that right. Okay, you know, because um, he does insist that Buttercup should marry Wesley, right? Um, and we saw that in the previous in the previous one, but. Um, at the very least, there should be revenge, right? Um, and of course, it's interesting that that's the other—that's the other theme of the story, right? Is the revenge? Um. <laughs> Philip Menzies says, "If Disney had made this movie, Humperdinck would have tried to kill Wesley after the climax in a treacherous way, and ended up killing himself by falling from a great height." <laughs> That's almost certainly what would have happened, Philip. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, but anyway, uh, notice what has to happen here. He threatens to stop reading again, right? Um, as you guys were pointing out. Um, as, and again, notice the, the shift already, right? From the reluctant boy who didn't really want to hear this at all. Um, and um, and now, you know, he's, he's, he's a couple times said he's going to stop reading and... Uh, uh, yeah, and the boy insists that he continue. Uh, but notice, he gets his grandfather to continue here by... You know, the grandfather who is trying to get him engaged is now afraid that he's too engaged, right? Um, and says, maybe we should stop reading because you're too engaged. And the boy's response is instead just to say, um, no, I'm okay. I'm okay, right? Not, my heart is a secret garden and the walls are very high, right? But I, I'm okay. I can maintain distance from this. Um, so again, now this, this struggle has, has, kind of, has kind of turned around. But we don't see him necessarily being changed in that way by this. Again, not in the life is not fair way that the narrator claims to have been changed by this experience. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so keeping these things in mind, let's go back and look at the... Um, Let's go back and look at the the, the fairy tale story, um, and we're gonna go we're gonna go really fast now, but uh, but again same same deal. M- make your observations as we go. Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Her favorite pastimes were riding her horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. Isn't that a wonderful beginning? Yeah, it's really good. Nothing gave Buttercup as much pleasure as ordering Wesley around. Farm boy, polish my horse's saddle. I want to see my face shining in it by morning. As you wish. As you wish was all he ever said to her. 
Go on, boy. Fill these with water. Please. As you wish. That day, she was amazed to discover that when he was saying, as you wish, what he meant was, I love you. And even more amazing was the day she realized she truly loved him back. Come, boy. Fetch me that picture. Hold it, hold it. What is this? Are you trying to trick me? Where's the sports? Is this a kissing book? Wait, just wait. When's it get good? Keep your shirt on, let me read. <laughs> When's it get good is a, is a great one. Um, I can't help but point out the blessed silence of the moment from Buttercup at the moment at which she realizes that she loves Wesley. Um, and it's a fascinating reversal, isn't it? Normally, when you're adapting a book to a film, the challenge is, how do you take those things which happen purely internally in the heads of a character that the narrator tells us about, and how do you convey that to an audience on screen? Here, we get the absolute reverse, right? They take this process of Buttercup's falling, recognizing that she is in love with Wesley, which was uh, 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 sort of painfully verbalized in the book, and made it into a completely silent internal thing. Uh, it's um, that's that's actually that's actually kind of uh, kind of fun. Um, notice the totally unapologetic, complete immersion into the fantasy fairy tale world right from the get-go, right? Um, several of you pointed out, uh, you know, Cynthia Smith and Nancy Fosberg were immediately pointing out the absence of, of her parents, of Buttercup's parents, right? Um, and I was a, clearly a really important thing. Um, and, uh, um, we, oh, no, sorry, it was, uh, it was uh, uh, Thomas. Nancy was pointing out that the music signals that were moving into another world uh, before, even while the voiceover is still going, before we're all the way immersed, I agree. Um, and, uh, and yes, the, but uh, as Thomas and, Th and Cynthia were saying, the difficult marriage of Buttercup's parents um, sort of both removes that kind of qualification on... I mean, that is to say, even within the context within the context of the story, forgetting even Goldman and his uh, his unhappy marriage uh, uh, and sort of even unhappy uh, thwarted fling with the starlet, right? Um, forget forgetting all that stuff. But um, even without that, within the story of the Princess Bride, within Morgenstern's own story of 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 the Princess Bride we get the idea of this true love experience that Buttercup is having with Wesley, and we get that being juxtaposed against her parents and their unhappiness in their own marriage, right? So, um, it's, um, we remove that, right? 
that element which compromises, clearly compromises the sort of fairy tale sweetness of the moment. Um, we have no compromise of that. In, and even the fact, the removal of her parents also has a practical effect as well. Um, that is, uh, as uh, a, a couple of you were asking, like what, uh, um, where, what's really happening here? Are like, do they live alone at the farm? Right, her and her and Wesley. We don't see any evidence of anybody else. Right, um, it's again, but. Don't bother me with trifles, right? Um, we're just it's, we're just telling the love story, and so it's like happening in suspension. We don't get any background. We don't need any background. We don't even know, um, you know, where this is. Any of the details. We get nothing about the village boys or her, uh, her you know, or the, the the village girls. We get none of that stuff, right? We don't get uh, jealousy either. Um, and uh, uh, Neil was pointing this out. There's no visit of the Duke and Duchess, or the Count and Countess, sorry, to make her, uh, to make her guilty, or guilty, jealous. Instead, we, um, and, and in fact, it's not just the absence of that, but it's reversed. Remember, in the book, she first comes to realize that she loves Wesley when she is uh, jealous of the Countess. Um, and only after that is she, when she finally gives him the opportunity to speak, actually, after that, that she comes to understand that he loves her, too, right? Um, in the film, she first perceives his love, and that's the turning point for her. So she is responding to his love, not merely uh, responding in jealousy. Um yeah, Philip, we are told what happens to the parents in the book. They die shortly after um, that opening sequence. Um, yeah, yeah, good. none of that stuff about the procession of beauty, no no mention of her in the rankings, right? Again, all of those kind of... I don't know what to call them. Sort of commercialized language again. They, all those elements that are so distant from sort of a pure fairy tale tone... Um, they're kind of parodies of that fairy tale tone that we get throughout the early parts of the book. We don't get any of those here. Instead, what do we get? We get, if anything, sort of exaggerated, like fairy tale moments like this, right? This kind of egregiously over the shot, like, and the two of them kissing with the setting sun falling behind them, right? I mean, this, you know, tableau, right? It's, it's uh, far more over the top. And yet, I completely agree with you, Daniel that um, uh, there's no, like, winking at the audience, right? At no point does the, it, are we given any cues in this early section here that we're not supposed to take this seriously, right? That we're, we're, we're not cued to laugh at them, right? The only cues that we get are the resistance of the boy. But again, the resistance of the boy is couched on the fact that he's not interested in a kissing book. Um... So again, that seems almost to sort of deflect any resistance that we might feel towards the fairy tale story. So okay, let's uh, keep going. Keep going. Wesley had no money for marriage, so he packed his few belongings and left the farm to seek his fortune across the sea. It was a very emotional time for Buttercup. 
I don't believe this. I fear I'll never see you again. Of course you will. But what if something happens to you? Hear this now. I will always come for you. But how can you be sure? This is true love. Think this happens every day? Wesley didn't reach his destination. His ship was attacked by the dread pirate Roberts, who never left captives alive. When Buttercup got the news that Wesley was murdered... Murdered by pirates is good. She went into her room and shut the door. And for days, she neither slept nor ate. I'll never love again. It was a very emotional time for Buttercup. It is a great line. I love that line. I don't believe this. Um, but again, immediately after that, we get you know the close-ups on their faces as they embrace, and the 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 you know a Buttercup looking beautiful and sad, and the and the sweet kisses between them. Once we go back into the you know from out of the frame into the story, um, once we're within that frame. Again, that we're not, we're not laughing anymore. Um, notice all of the things that have been taken out, all of those things which do distance us from it. As uh, Jeannie says, no mention of blue jeans or America. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly it. Um, Daniel Bear points out how she is never concerned with her own beauty. Yeah, neither are we. Uh, we are permitted to perceive that she's beautiful, but um, it's it's never commented upon. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Philip Lord points out how uh, murdered by pirates is good, uh, you know, provides this direct contradiction to his reaction about the actual death of Wesley. Um, yeah, we see how far he's shifted, right, from these earlier times when he's searching for anything. Right to make the story more interesting than it seems to be threatening to be, um, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, and because um, there was somebody, one other, another comment that I wanted to mention, but I lost it. Um, yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, Karita, you make a really great point. I mean, again, we are... Um, you think about the book, not only how she is sort of thinking about herself, but you think about the, 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 the constant stream of chatter in her declaration of love. Um, uh, we see just the, the two of them concerned for each other. This it's Although we're being immersed in this deep fairy tale uh, frame, we seem to be asked, as adults watching the film, right, uh, sort of with the grandfather over the head of the boy, appreciating this story. And now, finally, the point which um, several of you were try wanting to make at the time when we were talking about the book, but uh, our, um, uh, I wouldn't let us talk about it then, the difference between I must never love again, and I will never love again. Which is how, so the, in the film, it is, I will never love again. 
and in the and that's what I was looking for. Someone else had pointed that out. Um, anyway, um, uh, so yeah, absolutely. There's a huge difference there, isn't there? Um, I must never love again is a resolution that she is making, or you know, um, it would be uh, it would be unwise for me to ever to love again. Uh, it, it is really it would be bad for me to do that. I shouldn't do it. Um, I must never do it. Versus, I this flat, I will never love again. Um, oh, Arthur, it was you. Yes, good, good. Uh, sorry for losing that there. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, cool, yeah. Um, it is so much easier. You know, Philip, you're right. It is so much easier to invest in Buttercup as a character, especially. More than any of the other characters in the book, she's the one who changes most dramatically um, in this, and we are, I think we are being asked to invest, especially in this scene, right? We're being asked to sympathize with her. She, We see how devastated she is, and that hopeless statement, the statement not of resolution, but of hopelessness, I will never love again. Um, it's uh, uh, clearly I see I see no obstacle being thrust upon us, no obstacle being 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 sort of shoved in between us and our um, sympathy with Buttercup and our pre our sort of investment in her story. My people, a month from now, our country will have its five hundredth anniversary. On that sundown. I shall marry a lady who was once a commoner like yourselves. But perhaps you will not find her common now. Would you like to meet her? Yes! My people, the Princess Buttercup. Buttercup's emptiness consumed her. Although the law of the land gave Humperdinck the right to choose his bride, she did not love him. Huge change there. Huge change. Contrast this with the conversation that Buttercup and Humperdinck have um, during his very unorthodox wooing. You see the consequences of those last words that we just got? Right? Although the law of the land gave Humperdinck the right to choose his bride, she did not love him. In other words, Buttercup in the film is 100% a victim. Right? She, it's completely a one-way choice. There's not been any arrangement made between her and Humperdinck. Right? Humperdinck has taken her... He, he, he's, she is under compulsion. Um, she's a victim. Um, we are not her coming together with Humperdinck, you know, her arrangement with Humperdinck, which may, you know, in some way undermine our view of her in the book, um, doesn't, right? It's not an issue. She's a victim. It's all one-sided. 
Um, and that's, uh, you know, again, we can see the same, her still holding the same expression, I will never love again, right? You know, I, I will never love again. It's not just that she doesn't love him. I will never love again could still be the caption here. Buttercup's emptiness consumed her. She's still empty. We saw her empty at the end of that last scene. She's still empty now. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. Um, good, yeah. Uh, Sarah uh, points out that the book also makes Humperdinck nicer, in a sense, by, you know, when he says that she will come to love him. Certainly, at least, kind of makes him a little bit more sympathetic. I mean, remember Humperdinck in the book saying, um, why would you prefer death to being married to me? I, I, I'm the, the prince, and I'm not that bad, right? Um, and I mean, it's not that this necessarily totally wins us over to Humperdinck, but but again, th- th- there, are, there are definitely ways, Sarah, I agree with you, in which our sympathies are kind of rallied to Humperdinck's side, at least briefly and temporarily, Right? Not so here, right? We see here, and look at the distance, right? The way that this emphasizes the distance, the, the physical distance between Buttercup and Humperdinck, um, they're 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 very far apart. He's up on his balcony, looking down, right? And he's got uh, uh, he's 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 got that like horrible smug expression that uh, uh, I forget the name of the Humperdinck actor, um, but he's awesome. I he, I think he does a great job with Humperdinck, um, but. Uh, uh, anyway, yeah, uh, Chris Sarandon, thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, Chris Sarandon doing his sort of haughty, uh, indulgent, creepy thing. Um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, just emphasizing, you know, so this, the look on Humperdinck's face, you know, during this segment, combined with her, like, I am empty and I will never love again, Expression, um, it's really, uh, um, uh, uh, really evocative of the horrible situation that she's in. And again, no barriers between us and her. Right? She's. We've never once been invited to laugh at Buttercup. Um, I mean, we had this whole class in which we spent sort of debating: Are we laughing at Buttercup? To what extent? You know, do we sympathize with Buttercup? And although Buttercup kind of grew on me over the course of that class. Still, there was a lot to kind of overlook. There was, there was a lot to grow. For, there, was, there was a lot of growth available to Buttercup's character in the first part of this book. Um, but uh, you know, again, no, no, no barriers between us and her. Now let's jump ahead to uh, uh, Buttercup and Wesley. Catch your breath. If you'll release me, whatever you ask for ransom, you'll get it. I promise you. (laughs) And what is that worth? The promise of a woman. You're very funny, Highness. I was giving you a chance. It does not matter where you take me. There is no greater hunter than Prince Humperdinck. He can track a falcon on a cloudy day. He can find you. You think your dearest love will save you? I never said he was my dearest love. And yes, he will save me. That I know. You admit to me you do not love your fiancé. He knows I do not love him. I'm not capable of love is what you mean. I have loved more deeply than a killer like yourself could ever dream. That was a warning, Highness. The next time my hand flies on its own, for where I come from, there are penalties when a woman lies.
what's the uh, what's the story here? How are we supposed to understand? Does this hold together? Right, we got Wesley as you know, uh, uh, you know, making his statements about you know, it's true love. Do you think this happens every day? Right, and then you know, in a couple minutes at the foot of the hill, you know, down in the ravine, he's going to be, you know, delivering the lines that we've already seen about, uh, um, you know, how, uh, uh, you know, true love will, you know, he will always come and all that stuff. And now here in the middle, we have him, you know, you are not capable of love, right? Can we, can we follow this? Is this, have we hit an obstacle here? Does this challenge our suspension of disbelief? You know, are we able to still invest in this story? How does how does this work? Um, yeah, Kate, he's a little bitter, right? We do get clearly the impression that he's a little bitter, even in Philip, as you say, the sort of casual misogyny in which he indulges at the beginning, right? He's embittered and apparently embittered towards all women by Buttercup, right? Um, or by the conclusions he's drawn about um, about Buttercup. Um. Uh, yeah, good, Sarah. We we do. Sarah Lagarde says we do. We see that he feels spurned. Absolutely. No, uh, to me, the the most crucial. I won't play it again. To me, the crucial moment in this clip is the one uh, here, where she, you know she's she's saying what he seems to expect her to say. Right, Prince Humperdinck. My 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 fiance will catch you. You can't possibly escape him. Um, notice the way in which at this moment the dialogue is reflecting the way... Remember later in the book, when Wesley is in the Zoo of Death, Humperdinck is just trying to get Buttercup to admit that he's at least as good as Wesley, right? To, to, to compromise even just a little bit her assertions that Wesley is better than everybody at everything, right? Um, anyway, so here we see her saying about Humperdinck, or appearing to say about Humperdinck to Wesley what he seems to believe, right? Oh, so now you found this rich prince who's like the greatest hunter in the world and and she's playing true to form, right? He's concerned he's she's she's confirming all of his worst conclusions his his most unflattering conclusions about her by go- and then she, you know when so he makes that crack about her dearest love, right? And she says um she says, "I didn't, you know, I never said he was my he was my dearest love, but yes, he will save me." And so then, when he responds by saying, "So you admit you do not love your fiance," um, he looks genuinely surprised when he comes over. That seems to be a moment where he's learned this for the first time. In order, in order, it seems that he has done what he has done in the knowledge or believing that she has, in fact, betrayed him, right? That she, that when he, you know, left uh, and uh, and was gone for a few years, that she turned around and married Humperdinck. He seems to misunderstand the situation. Um, so why... Uh, so, yeah... Uh, um, Sarah Powell, that's what, exactly, Sarah Powell was saying, um, I never understood why if he had such a firm belief in true love, why he feels the need to threaten her when she's obviously the victim. Um, uh, exactly, I don't think he does. I don't think he does know that. There seems to be a misunderstanding here. Um, and it's interesting because Wesley's crisis here, or his failure in faith, 
right? Um, his failure to rely upon her love. Um, he doesn't believe that she's been faithful. Um, and it's not that he thinks so with no cause whatsoever. Um, she, again, she's gone and become engaged to someone else. And it looks like an upgrade, too, for that matter, right? Um, the appearances could easily lead him to believe that uh, she has been unfaithful to true love. But yet, in drawing that conclusion, Wesley is failing, right? He is failing in failing to show faith to that sort of creed about true love that he himself um, that he himself advocates, right? But that is doesn't really come in for emphasis. I don't think to spare Wesley, but because Wesley's not the center of the story, Buttercup is the center of the story, and she has been very clearly the center piece of our own sympathies throughout. Um, you know, outside the story, we're sitting alongside the boy in his bed listening to the grandfather. Within the story, we're with Buttercup. Um, and it's her perspective that we're following. Um, now, we will see... Um, uh, we'll see that she... The, the story will shift about, right? She is going to be placed in a position where she has her own faith tested, right? As his has been tested and not come through with flying colors, right? Um, but, again, that's that's going to be, that's that I think is going to be the drama. I don't know, Nancy, what his plan was if he discovered that she did love Prince Humperdinck. He seems to rescue her, chiefly to sort of discover that, right? Chiefly to uh, uh, to what? Test her? To see um, uh, you know, what her real, what her true um, uh, feelings are? Um Though, again, I do think that that one moment is the moment of discovery, but in the second moment, after that, he seems to be kind of testing this out. That is, she has declared that she doesn't love her fiancé. He seems to be interested to hear that, but yet he does not seem sure that he believes her. And I do take that desire to test her um, and sort of probe that as part of what underlies the second scene. Rest, Highness. I know who you are. Your cruelty reveals everything. You're the dread pirate Roberts. Admit it. With pride. What can I do for you? You can die slowly, cut into a thousand pieces. Hardly complimentary, Your Highness. Why lose your venom on me? You kill my love. It's possible. I kill a lot of people. Who was this love of yours? Another prince like this one? Ugly and rich and scabby. No, a farm boy. Poor. Poor and perfect. With eyes like the sea after a storm. On the high seas, your ship attacked. The dread pirate Roberts never takes prisoners. I can't afford to make exceptions. I mean, once word leaks out that a pirate has gone soft, people begin to disobey you, and then it's nothing but work, work, work all the time. You mock my pain. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. I remember this farm boy of yours, I think. This would be, what, five years ago? Does it bother you to hear? Nothing you can say will upset me. He died well. That should please you. No bribe attempts or blubbering. Simply said, please. Please, I need to live. It was the please that caught my memory. I asked him what was so important for him. 
true love he replied and then he spoke of a girl of surpassing beauty and faithfulness I can only assume he meant you you should bless me for destroying him before he found out what you really are and what am I Faithfulness he talked of, madam, your enduring faithfulness. Now tell me truly, when you found out he was gone, did you get engaged to your prince that same hour, or did you wait a whole week out of respect for the dead? You mocked me once, never do it again! I died that day! You can die too, for all I care! Oh. As you wish! Oh, my sweet Wesley, what have I done? Ow! All right. Um, several of you pointed out, and I don't want to appear to be skimming over uh, the, so the the disturbing threats of violence uh, to Buttercup. Um, you know, his threatening to chastise her by striking her uh, and everything, and and his you know, kind of especially coming right after his misogynistic statement about the you know the uh, the promise of a woman. Um, I, I don't intend to skim that over at all. What I would point out, though which I think is a really important thing in thinking about the reception of that scene, is again where the locus of our sympathy is, which is with Buttercup. If anything, it seems to me that Buttercup's courage is what is emphasized in that uh, in that scene. Again, Wesley is, from, from our experience, from within our, uh, our knowledge as we're reading this, as we're reading, as we're watching the story, peripheral. Right? Buttercup is the central figure. Um, and interpreting that scene the way I was doing, like looking at Wesley at the you know the moment that he seems to recognize, wait a second, perhaps I've made a mistake. Maybe she, you know, she's now saying she doesn't really love him. That's interesting, right? L- let me learn more about this. In a sense, that's all after the fact, right? That's not the experience of that moment. He's just the man in black, right? He's he's you know the man in the mask, and men who wear masks can't be trusted. So, um, uh. It's um, his cruelty reveals all, right? As we learn a little bit later on, um, we see him. We don't know any necessary reason at that moment uh, when we're, you know, up consuming the story as the boy, uh, you know, in his sickbed is consuming the story. We don't know any reason not to think that he is not just a sort of a threatening figure in black who is sort of living up to his role. Right, in threatening violence to her, we don't know why he has come to take her away from her kidnappers. After all, is she has she been saved? We know she was going to be killed by Vizzini, um, so it seems like she has been saved, which is good. But to what fate, we don't know. And it doesn't. This that first exchange seems to lead us to believe it's not going to be a good one, right? Um, so I, again, I think I think that his threats of violence against her are important. Um, in in sort of establishing that, but again, what is the effect of them? To what do they contribute? Ultimately, I would argue they contribute again to our sympathy of Buttercup. We see her now as doubly, trebly the victim. Right? She was the victim of Humperdinck first. She's the victim vi- the victim of of Vizzini second. Now she's the victim of the Man in Black. Right? And yet, throughout all of these trials, she remains. Uh, she remains firm. She remains strong. She even stands. She turns her head aside, but she doesn't cower. She doesn't beg, right? She sort of expects to be struck. She defies him even after he's been, uh, you know, mean to her. And then, of course, we see ultimately we, we leading up to her pushing him down the cliff. Um, so, 
you know, I, I, again, it seems to me that that's her strength of character is one of the major motifs that we get throughout this whole throughout this whole section. In this portion, of course, and we can see him trying to set this up. We see him probing more and more about her love for you know who, who was it that you did love, who is it that you still love, um, you know, and her uh, her mentioning about how his eyes are like a sea after a storm. Um, the transposition of that is to me really interesting. Of course, she says that though. Uh, you're right. I think if uh, I believe Sarah King points out that in the book. She says that his eyes are like the sea before a storm. I don't know what to make of that, Sarah. Um, whether that was an, you know, I, I don't know if either, of course, whether that was an intentional change. But, uh, but I don't. I'm not sure, quite sure what to make of it. But it's, it's. It, I mean, of course, uh, it reflects the literal transposing of the line, right? Maybe it's a joke about that fact, right? That is, she made that observation in the hovel back at the farm right before the storm, and now it's after the storm. Uh, you know, so it kind of fits with the narrative placement, but. Anyway, um, uh, anyhow, that line being transposed from where she just kind of tossed it off in the middle of her one, or her, one of her completely breathless rambles about her own love for him, um, and now she, instead of being focused on herself, she's taken away, right? She's, she gets completely abstracted in that moment, just reflecting on him. Um, and then, of course, the life is pain line, right? Transposed from Fezzik's parents to Wesley in that moment. But again, we see his bitterness, his desire to lash out at her, his desire to cause her pain. The fact that he articulates the line which was delivered by Fezzik's mom when she was being really unsympathetic to the poor, pitiable, um, you know, adorable young Fezzik. You know, so in its context, it's kind of a it's kind of a puppy-kicking line, if you know what I mean by that, right? We get adorable little Fezzik, and his mom, instead of giving him the affection and sympathy that he so desires, and we would so like him to receive, tells him life is pain. Anyone who tells you different is selling, some, uh, is selling something. That's the line that Wesley delivers here. So we see him in that mode. He's the puppy-kicker uh, now. Um, yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, good. And of course, as Lynn points out, where this seems to, to is to go like right after this is when we, you know, life isn't only pain, right? Um, and that it's that almost transitions into the unexpected, you catastrophic triumph of love, right? And with his repetition of "as you wish" and her pursuit, her rec- instant recognition of it, and realization of what happens, and her tumbling pursuit of him uh, down the hill. Now, the turning point. We're skipping the entire fire swamp. Turning point. This is the big moment, right? This is the moment which, uh, uh, you know, I think is so hard to... um, uh, Oh, interesting. Uh, Alyssa says the, the puppy kicking is balanced by his concern in does it bother you to hear? Um... Yeah, that is an interesting line in context, isn't it? There's the, it, perhaps a glimpse of remaining tenderness, right? Or again, sort of probing what's her reaction going to be. Um, of course, part of him wants it to bother her to hear. Um, but she responds again with strength and confidence. Nothing you can say can hurt me. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Okay, anyhow, but remember, this is the moment. So she's going to go back to Humperdinck, and her choice to go back to basically choose the saving of her life over death with her love uh, is the moment which, um, uh, you know, I, I was, to me is, is sort of the crucial moment. This, that's the moment where either, you know, th- that, that her character has to survive or else it completely falls apart. And to me, what we see from her in the rest of the book does not really seem to support the idea uh, you know any of the sort of optimistic interpretations that we were attempting to place upon it at the time. I was interested to hear. Uh, by the way, I was just talking with one of my uh, colleagues um, uh, down in Charlotte when I was at the conference down there a couple of weeks ago, the chair of the English department down there, who actually admitted that he got to this moment in the book, um, and as soon as she delivered that line, that you know the big controversial line, he stopped reading. He said, "I just closed the book at that point." I was like, "I'm I'm done." I can understand. Um, but anyway, the moment in the film, and this again, a bunch of you are wanting to talk about this when we discussed this passage in the book, and I tried not to. Surrender. You mean wish to surrender to me? Pretty well, I accept. I give you full marks for bravery. Don't make yourself a fool. Ah, but how will you capture us? We know the secrets of the fire swamp. We can live there quite happily for some time, so whenever you feel like dying, feel free to visit. I tell you once again, surrender will not happen for the last time surrender death first will you promise not to hurt him what was that what was then if we surrender and i return with you will you promise not to hurt this man may i live a thousand years and never hunt again he is a sailor on the pirate ship revenge promise to return him to his ship i swear it will be done Once we're out of sight, take him back to Florin and throw him in the pit of despair. I swear it will be done. I thought you were dead once, and it almost destroyed me. I cannot bear it if you died again. Not when I could save you. Come, sir. We must get you to your ship. We are men of action. Lies do not become us. Well spoken, sir. What is it? You have six fingers on your right hand. Someone was looking for you. Okay, good bunch of really good observations you guys are making. I'm going to kind of sum them up because I do have to accelerate. We're going to be here until 1 o'clock in the morning. So, um, note, to me, the most, even apart from the lines, obviously the hugest departure from this scene, from the book in this scene, is her extra speech to Wesley, right? Um, but, uh, But even before that, we get it anticipated in this moment. Right, he's saying, you know, surrender, never death first. We get the shots not only of the guys coming out from behind the trees with crossbows, but of her looking around and seeing them while Wesley remains focused entirely on Humperdinck. In other words, um, she there's there's not a difference in level of commitment which there seems to be in the book. Right, he's committed to dying for the sake of death. She's not. 
right? She'd rather live than die. Um, here in the film, um, she he, Wesley's just focused on defying Humperdinck. She's aware of the surroundings and recognizing he, they're about to shoot him in the back, so she does the only thing that could possi- possibly be done. He's about to die, much closer to death, um, as uh, 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 yeah, Kate was pointing out. Uh, much closer to death in the film than he was in the book, and her act is explicitly an act of self-sacrifice, right? Um, not when I could save you. That's what she didn't say in the book, right? I, I couldn't bear it if you died again. Not when I could save you. Um, her going back with Humperdinck is not a choice. Like, I'm going to opt out of dying here and go back. Like, going back with Prince Humperdinck, it's not great. I'd kind of rather be with Wesley, but I'd rather be alive than dead. That's what she appears to say. She does what she... It's not exactly what she says, but that seems to be what she's expressing in the book. In the film, it is explicitly self-sacrifice. If I can, if by if by doing this, I can save you, I'm willing to do that. I could not bear to have you die again. And the rich foreshadowing of that line: "You died once, right? I couldn't bear for you to die again." And of course, we know he is going to die again. But you know, but even the idea of successive deaths anticipates not only the fact that he's going to die, but the fact that perhaps that death, too, isn't going to take. Um, Anyway, it's, you know, it puts to the test, it's almost, again, like her words to him challenge him to put to the test his own words about true love and faithfulness, right? Um, He chastised her for doubting, right? Um, He said, "I, I said, I would always come to you why didn't you believe me? And she says, well, you were dead. And she says, I will never doubt again. Right? And now, sort of, she's, you could take, in addition to an act of self-sacrifice, you could take her submission here as an act of faith. Right? You said you would always come to me. By doing this, I'm creating a situation where you can come to me again. And this time, I'm going to believe you. I, 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 will, I will never doubt again. Right? And he says there will never be a need. Um, so now, okay, well, he was wrong about that, but she's gonna she's gonna stick to it, right? So the hundred and eighty degree. There is not. I don't see a like moment. He's confused because he doesn't understand what's going on. She's being more proactive than he expects. I mean, if anything, his his look here, you know, his like, uh, you know, his what was that to her? Um, is because she's broken the script, right? He was just in the middle of a heroic fairy tale hero thing, right? Where he was offering to uh, to die defending his love, and now instead she has stepped forward and instead done the self-sacrificial heroic thing, right? Um, so she's broken with the fairy tale script, and he's con- both of them are confused, and yet the fairy tale itself is not broken, like it is broken, I think, in the book in that moment, um, and for me as a reader, irrevocably broken at that moment in the book. Um, And also, another interesting cue that I find... Two things... Oh, yeah, two other small things about this scene. Um, One, which I wasn't thinking about, but you guys are very right about. Thomas and and, uh, Philip were both pointing out that... In the book, Humperdinck doesn't lie; he 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 equivocates, right? He he minces words, um, and uh, whereas he outright lies uh, in the film, 
Um, he says that he will return Wesley to his ship, and he doesn't return Wesley to his ship. Uh, we see him immediately giving a contrary order. Um, so the shift in the depiction of Humperdinck and of her perception of Humperdinck, that is, in the book she says, well, he said that he wouldn't kill you himself, so that's, you know, and he, he'll keep his promise. She believes, she has some faith in Humperdinck. Um, here, her faith in Wesley seems to just override that, right? She believes he's, he'll always come for her, so that's what's going to happen. Um, okay, so let's look at later on with Humperdinck. This juxtaposition is wonderful. Uh, as a as a result of the contrast with the crone here, I always thought that uh, Buttercup never looks so beautiful uh, as she does in this moment. It was ten days till the wedding. The king still lived, but Buttercup's nightmares were growing steadily worse. See? Didn't I tell you she'd never marry that rotten humperdink? Yes, you're very smart. Shut up. It comes to this. I love Wesley. I always have. I know now I always will. If you tell me I must marry you in ten days, please believe I will be dead by morning. I could never cause you grief. Consider our wedding off. You um, return this Wesley to his ship? Yes. Then we will simply alert him. Beloved, are you certain he still wants you? After all, it was you who did the leaving in the fire swamp. Not to mention that uh, pirates are not known to be men of their words. My Wesley will always come for me. I suggest a deal. You write four copies of a letter. I'll send my four fastest ships, one in each direction. The Dread Pirate Roberts is always close to Florin this time of year. We'll run up the white flag and deliver your message. If Wesley wants you, bless you both. If not, please consider me as an alternative to suicide. Are we agreed? the difference between that very reserved nod at the end and the effusiveness with which she, uh, you know, the, 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 how she becomes buddies with Humperdinck in the book and um, is completely taken in by him and in fact exploited by him for information about Wesley which he can use against him in the zoo of death to torture him um, uh Again, we see Buttercup in a completely different place. We see her her strength. Notice how in Humperdinck's response, right? It was you who did the leaving in the fire swamp, right? He is challenging her faith. Are you certain he still wants you, right? Trying to sow that kind of doubt. Um, and she has none of it, right? Wesley will always come for me, she says, Clearly, certainly, without any doubts, she is uh, uh, she is not going to be uh, she's not going to fail in that way again, right? She said 
she would you know she would never doubt him and she's not going to go so again we we see we see her strength of character um we are uh we are we are again i i I'm completely behind buttercup here she's not being undermined as she is i think very seriously undermined um by her sort of collusion with humperdinck and the completeness of her being of her taken her being taken in um by him and of course at the beginning of this passage the undermining of the life is unfair moral, right? When uh, the boy triumphantly says, like, see, I knew she wouldn't marry that rotten Humberdink. Um Yeah. So, oh, okay, I can, maybe life is fair after all, I guess. So much for that moral. We've totally left it behind. A little strange, given the emphasis on it in the book. Um, uh, more. Let's look more at uh, Buttercup's faith in Wesley. Ah, my dulcet darling. Tonight we marry. Tomorrow morning your men will escort us to Florin Channel, where every ship in my armada waits to accompany us on our honeymoon. Every ship but your four fastest, you mean? Every ship but the four you sent? Yes, yes, of course. <laughs> Naturally not those four. Your Majesties. You never sent the ships. Don't bother lying. Doesn't matter. Wesley will come for me anyway. You're a silly girl. Yes, I am a silly girl. For not having seen sooner that you were nothing but a coward with a heart full of fear. I would not say such things if I were you. Why not? You can't hurt me. Wesley and I are joined by the bonds of love. And you cannot track that, not with a thousand bloodhounds. And you cannot break it, not with a thousand swords. And when I say you are a coward, that is only because you are the slimiest weakling ever to crawl the earth. I would not say such things if I were you. love each other and so you might have been truly happy not one couple in a century has that chance no matter what the storybooks say and so i think no man in a century will suffer as greatly as you will Doctor 50 um yeah, Neil, he doesn't turn it up to 11, but to 50. Uh, the Count's machine only goes to 20 in the book, so that's an interesting exaggeration. They've obviously ramped that up. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, good. Um, Thomas Johnson makes a wonderful point again. Uh, it's a complete re- reversal from the book. In the book, Buttercup says she's learning a lot as she gets older. Remember that that passage? Even though there's no evidence of this. Whereas here, Buttercup acknowledges that she's been a silly girl, and in this self-awareness shows maturity. Absolutely. And I mean, and even just to make a, a, a much uh, uh, less uh, uh, intelligent point than Thomas was just making, notice how much snappier her, her comebacks are? Right? You know, rather than being, she's, remember she's like off in her own little fantasy world most of the time, and she doesn't really, Buttercup doesn't seem to be occupying the same mental space as almost anybody else in the latter portions of the book. Um, we see here, like, her wit, 
Um, right, you know, he he dismisses her as a silly girl, but instead she comes back with that great line: "Yes, I I was a silly girl ever to believe, you know, to, to not to see that you were a complete coward." Right? I mean, it's it's uh, it's really it's really good. And then Nancy, you're right. This looks like jealous rage, uh, which sort of seems strange coming from Humperdinck. Um, it's like he has perceived the sort of the truth of the situation, right? That he has perceived... It's almost like Humperdinck is himself being drawn in to the fairy tale story, right? Um, in the sense that... And again, that's what he seems to himself to confirm, right? You truly love each other, and so you might have been truly happy. Um, uh, and that, uh, you know, no matter what the fairy tales say, that's, that's uh, you know, not one, not one couple in a thousand has that chance. In other words, Humperdinck is confessing Okay, okay, yeah, fine. The fairy tale is true, right? The fairy tale is really happening. You truly love... She has stood up to the... Ch- I was hoping she would... Um, I was hoping she would crack. I was hoping she would forget about it, that this would pass. Um, he didn't doesn't seem to have a high um, uh, opinion. Humperdinck doesn't seem to have a high opinion of the constancy of women either. Um, and yet, all of those expectations have turned out to be untrue, and he is forced to recognize, yes, the fairy, the fairy tale thing is true. So I'm going to kill the fairy tale hero as a consequence. Um, yeah. Um, so, keep going. Keep going. Alright. I was going to talk about this one. Don't have time to talk about this one now. i skip this one. Skip to the end. Have you the wind? Here comes my Wesley now. Isaac, the portcullis! Your Wesley is dead. I killed him myself. Then why is there fear behind your eyes? Give us the gay key. I have no gay key. Isaac, there his arms are. Oh, you mean this gate key? Under you, Princess Bahwa. Man and wife. Sing man and wife. Man and wife. Escort the bride to the honeymoon suite. I'll be there shortly. He didn't come. Remember how during the ceremony she is completely in La La Land in the book, right? She's. You know, and and there's also the crack about her not being good with numbers, right? As she's trying to calculate things. Um, instead, in the film, we get her, again her staunch declaration of faith, right? And we see it, we see it tell, right? Um, you know, in the then, you know, her confidence here. You know, then why is there fear behind your eyes? Um, we see she's winning, right? She, you know, what she is, her her faith and her faith is being supported. We see Wesley coming in. Remember in the book, the way in which she's having this fantasy about Wesley coming to her and she's so wrapped up in the fantasy that she misses the evidence of Wesley actually coming. You know, here we see her not only acknowledging it, but drawing what turns out to be the true conclusion from it. Um, uh, yeah, Carolyn, exactly. Buttercup elevates herself to a real storybook heroine who believes beyond death that Wesley will will come for her. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. and that. But then we do see her have 
when the, you know, she's shocked in this moment, like, wait a second, that wasn't supposed to happen. Like, I've just been married, and she's, you know, has this, she does have a moment of doubt here. Wesley didn't come, what happened? It didn't work out like I believed it was going to work out, right? So we do have this one little crisis of, of, uh, of faith on her part. Um, here's where we, uh, um, here's where we start shifting back and forth. Kill the Dark One and the Giant, but leave the third for questioning. Hello. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. I love the exchange of glances between Fezzik and Wesley there at the end. Um, there is no comedy at all through this initial confrontation. The way in which we've seen at times, as we were looking at at the end of the last class, the way in which we see these sort of comical moments threatening to compromise the um, uh, the, the the story of, of, of Inigo sort of breaking in on the story of Inigo... The confrontation with Count Rugen has no until the end, right? And it's Count Rugen himself who's undermined. And if anything, although uh, you know that that the, the moment of climax is seriously compromised by the count, by Count Rugen turning and running, it doesn't undermine Inigo at all, right? In in fact, rather it shows, um, you know, that it's, it's like he's even more up to the task than it seemed, right? Count Rugen uh, is not even willing to face him in a fair fight. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so so okay. Um, we'll keep following this. Watch the juxtapositions now. Think about how this is working. So we're getting the Inigo now. Now is when I want to be looking at the integration uh, uh, of the Inigo revenge story with the Wesleyan Buttercup story. Um, so we see uh, Buttercup's faith and her crisis of faith with uh, uh, coming with this moment now when Inigo is finally connecting. So let's uh, let's keep moving forward. We, we, the the film just goes straight back and forth. I'm not I'm bar- I'm not really skipping anything here. Strange wedding. Yes, a very strange wedding. Come along. What was that for? Because you've always been so kind to me, and I won't be seeing you again. Since I'm killing myself once we reach the honeymoon suite. Wouldn't that be nice? Hmm? She kissed me! <laughs> Won't that be nice is another one of my favorite lines. Um, uh, and it reminds me very much of one of my other favorite lines. Um, uh, Won't that be nice strikes me very much like she doesn't get eaten by the eels at this time. Um, 
you know, we've got the sad music in her, her you know, she, just as we've seen her be strong and resolute all the way through, now she's strongly and resolutely declaring her intention to kill herself when she gets back to the honeymoon suite. Um, and uh, there's this sort of resistance to that idea, right? Um, you know, the king's obliviousness, the, the comedy of the king's response, he's not processed this, she kissed me, right, is all that he can focus on. Um, and uh, uh, anyway, the, the way in which this, it, it, it diffuses the tragedy of the moment, but again, I think without under, under, undercutting Buttercup. We're not laughing at Buttercup here, right? Even though this highly dramatic moment is being <laughs> compromised by comedy, it's not Buttercup at all that we're being invited. It's the Deaf King that we're being invited. And we've been in laughing at the old Deaf King all the way through. Um, I was making the gesture before. I love that if you, if you watch on the balcony scenes, whenever he's out on the balcony, whenever anybody makes any noise, um, you know, when the crowd shouts, you know, when he says, do you want to meet her? And they say, yes, the king, the king goes like this. Cause like, you know, he assumes that they're all, they're all, uh, uh, you know, that they're cheering for him. He has no idea what's going on. Um, we've been laughing. So we always laugh at the king, even his crown all by itself prompts us to laugh at the king. Um, but again, it so it has a really interesting, uh, sort of effect on this, on this moment comedy, but without compromise, um, of the, uh, of our increasingly dramatic fairy tale ending. that little Spanish brat I taught a lesson to all those years ago. Simply incredible. You've been chasing me your whole life only to fail now. I think that's the worst thing I've ever heard. How marvellous. Um, Christopher Guest's little smile there is awful. <laughs> That's just a terrible, terrible thing. Um, yeah, Philip, no inner voice of his of his teachers. Um, we get, I mean, again, uh, the reduction of this, of all of these words from the book uh, to a completely silent um, uh, sort of performance uh, by the actors instead. What do we get in this scene? Life isn't fair, right? Um, life isn't fair, remember? You know, so sometimes even completely over-the-top evil people like the Count actually win, and stories like Inigo's don't end up like we think they should, right? There's no comedy anywhere in this particular scene, right? Outraged. Um... And yet, again, but life isn't fair. Maybe this is where we're supposed to be learning that lesson after all, perhaps. 
back to Buttercup now. Her music was already beginning at the end of that scene with, while you know, so the the gentle Buttercup music was already starting while Inigo was leaning back against the wall. perfect breasts in this world. It would be a pity to damage yours. Wesley! Oh, Wesley, darling! Wesley, why won't you hold me? Gently. At a time like this, that's all you can think to say. Gently. Gently! <sighs> the grunt. Um... Uh, Philip, I do believe this is the first reference in the film to Buttercup's beauty uh, and any sense of a ranking system. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, what do we see here? You know, we get so we're interrupting the climactic fight with Inigo um, and undermining the reunion, right? With the gently. <clears throat> Right, that we get there at the end is his head flops back against the headboard. Um, and, he, you know, she doesn't understand. This isn't going according to the script either, right? Um, now, there's dramatic irony at play here. We understand why this is happening, and she doesn't. Um, remember Wesley's attitude to Buttercup in the book and the rather disturbing things that we saw him saying to her uh, in this final scene. Um, uh, gently is almost an ironic word uh, in the circumstances. Um, again, we have comedy interjecting here, right? It's That's funny. You know, the fact that the anticlimax of their reunion here, um, especially the way that it contrasts to their previous reunion, in both cases they were lying prone next to each other, uh, well, not they were. I guess they both weren't prone. Now were they? Uh, she was supine. Um, but anyhow, um, they were both lying on the ground, and we have him, you know, above her, you know, looking all dashing with his ponytail, and his mask is gone, and uh, and uh, you know, saying these dramatic things to each other. And we have their positions reversed, and, but the same, posi- but the same situation adopted, right? And, and so the parallel is pretty clear, and yet it's not going the right way. Remember what he says to her at that scene earlier in the film, can you move it all, is the first line that he says to her, and he can't move it all, of course, uh, when they come together again. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Uh, um, uh, Philip says, it's like a good Star Wars movie. All the story threads get to the lowest point possible before they all turn the table and come up triumphant. Um, yeah, yeah. Buttercup's near suicide. So the turning point here is Wesley's comment about her breasts, right? That is uh, his his the reveal that Wesley has in fact come for her, right? And that her faith, um, which she has doubted, you know, why has thing have things not turned out the way they were supposed to? Wesley didn't come, right? Um, turns out all that that faith that she was showing has turned out to be vindicated, and. Um, 
uh, and they are reunited, though all isn't uh, apparently not with. So we do get some some tension here, right? That's expressed through the comedy of the anticlimax of their union. It's still not quite going the way it's supposed to go, right? The reunion went the way it was supposed to go last time. Um, this is not so. So now let's get to uh, Indigo turning things around again. Tell me what you notice. Heavens, are you still trying to win? You've got an overdeveloped sense of vengeance. It's going to get you into trouble someday. Kill my father. Prepare to die. Hello. My name is Diego Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. Hello. My name is Diego Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. Stop saying that. Promise me that. All that I have and more. Please offer me everything I ask for. Anything you want. I want my father back, you son of a bitch. Um, yeah, Brian, uh, sort of, uh, uh, pointing out how sort of horrifyingly unstoppable, uh, Inigo seems to be once he gets going here. Yes, the implacability of his advance, uh, is a really important, uh, part of that there. Um, um, yeah, yeah, um, uh, uh, Carolyn loves how he keeps gaining strength. Uh, from saying the line, right? Um, and Carolyn, yeah, the sense that that gives is the sense of him fulfilling his destiny. Again, in the book, we get Inigo being uh, uh, yelled at mostly by McPherson. You know, his memory. You know, his his father comes back and chastises him, right? That uh, you know for for failing, and um, then McPherson is yelling at him and complaining about Spaniards, right? And that's what motivates him here. We see. You know, him seeming to take strength from this, you know, from his purpose, right? His determination, uh, you know, this this is the the script that he has written, right? And again, notice how both stories, both the Indigo story and the Wesleyan Buttercup story, are both of them, they have, the, there's a way it's supposed to end, right? Um, and both of them are pursuing that end that is supposed to happen. Um, and the... Um, the the film seems to be 
bringing us to that place where those thing to the where where what is supposed to happen does happen. It's not about life not being fair. Um, notice how we get that sort of played with at the end, right? Um, in this moment, life isn't fair. He can't have his father back, right? His father isn't coming back. His father was taken away, and that wasn't fair. And yet, we do have the insistence on fairness um, by the parallels, right? Him reciprocating the injuries exactly. Um, that is, he, he stabs him, you know, in both sides and then slashes his face and then in the end stabs him through just like Inigo himself has been stabbed through by the, by the dagger that Rugen threw. So, um, you know, we have the exact reciprocation of the wounds. We don't get, um, uh, uh, Neo, as you were saying, no death through fear, right? We didn't get that line from Count Rugen at the beginning. Um, so, you know, it wouldn't have had the same impact here. Um, but instead, so but what do we get instead? Again, instead we get the more precise reciprocation um, of all of the wounds that Inigo receives. Um, in the book, Count Rugen is killed. There is, you know, sort of some wonderful poetic justice to it. He's killed by his Count Rugen's own method. Right, he becomes a victim of his own theory, essentially. Um, but in a sense, that actually takes the moment of the death of Count Rugen away from Inigo, right? Um, I mean, it doesn't really, because, of course, he's the one inducing the fear, but again, it makes the moment of his death not about... It's just, but it's just in the sense of Count Rugen receiving, the, the, uh, uh, receiving what he deserves for what a horrible torturer he is to everybody, not just as, uh, you know, the death uh, for you know, him sort of paying for the death of Domingo Montoya. Um, uh, anyway, yeah. Um, a good point, Jordan. Jordan points out that Inigo's wounds look much more realistic than Wesley's shoulder wound. Uh, absolutely, yes. I, I get it. It just seems to me to draw attention to uh, the, the comedic unreality of Wesley's earlier wound. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Carolyn Morehouse says, the film seems to care about how it gets to these central moments, these great central moments of the story building the emotional weight. Um, yeah, yeah. No, there is there is that sense of momentum, which even despite comedy, not that there's much comedy in this portion, um, but um, it... Uh, um, Still, you know, through the comedy, it does continue to build that. Again, you remember how the boy has long since ceased to be distancing himself or pretending that he's emotionally distant from the story, right? And we are not either. Um, by the way, notice the location. Um, the way, notice the connection, the further connection that's established between this final conflict and uh, the story of Wesley and Buttercup. Where are we? I didn't notice this for a long time. Where are we? What is this? What is this place? Yes. Yes. It's the wedding feast. It's the reception venue. This is the this is clearly the high table where Humperdinck and Buttercup were meant to sit at the feast after the wedding. Right? Um and that to me is really interesting. Notice this this sort of the instead of um instead of the 
victim, you know, Buttercup the victim who is supposed who is going to be sacrificed. Not she wasn't going to be he was going to kill her here, right? Um, but again, the 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 Humperdinck's plans for Buttercup are all about the. Instead, we get we get justice, right? We get the uh, the 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 victimizer um, uh, killed and dragging the garlands down to the ground from the high table um, as he goes. It's a really it's a really kind of cool reversal, and of course. I can remember the juxtaposition on the other side uh, with uh, Buttercup's uh, not quite attempted uh, suicide. Oh, Wesley, will you ever forgive me? What hideous sin have you committed lately? I got married. I didn't want to. It all happened so fast. Never happened. What? Never happened. But it did. I was there. This old man said man and wife. Did you say I do? Oh, no. I sort of skipped that part. Then you're not married. He didn't say it. He didn't do it. Wouldn't you agree, Your Highness? A technicality that will shortly be remedied. But first things first. To the death. No! To the pain. I don't think I'm quite familiar with that phrase. I'll explain. And I'll use small words so that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. That may be the first time in my life a man has dared insult me. It won't be the last. To the pain means the first thing you lose will be your feet below the ankles. Then your hands at the wrists. Next, your nose. And then my tongue, I suppose. I killed you too quickly the last time. A mistake I don't mean to duplicate tonight. I wasn't finished. The next thing you lose will be your left eye, followed by your right. And then my ears, I understand. Let's get on with it. Wrong! Your ears you keep, and I'll tell you why. So that every shriek of every child at seeing your hideousness will be yours to cherish. Every babe that weeps at your approach, every woman who cries out, Dear God, what is that thing, will echo in your perfect ears. That is what the pain means. It means I leave you in anguish, wallowing in freakish misery forever. I think you're bluffing. It's possible, pig. I might be bluffing. It's conceivable, you miserable, vomitous mass. I'm only lying here because I lack the strength to stand. Then again, perhaps I have the strength after all. Time up. Make it as tight as you like. Oh! Where's the Fessick? I thought he was with you. No. In that case, mm -hmm. help him. Why does Wesley need helping? Because he has no strength. I knew it. I knew you were bluffing. I knew he was bluffing. Shall I dispatch him for you? Thank you, but no. Whatever happens to us, I want him to live a long life alone with his cowardice. Um, 
Okay. So much to talk about here, and I'm so far over time, I don't want to go too long here. But, um, of course, we have the really important difference that we already talked about in our discussion of the book, the massive change of the emphasis on the fact that the wedding didn't actually happen. Notice in the context of what we've been talking about, the significance of that. That's not how the story is supposed to go. She's not supposed to marry Humberdink. She's supposed to marry Wesley. The boy has told us that, right? But rather than resisting that, as the book does, the film goes along with it. Oh, yeah, no, actually, that wedding, which appeared to be a real wedding, didn't really happen, right? That not a, not a whisper of that do we get in the book. In fact, I, and I really, I think that was a wonderful point, Nancy, that you made. Um, notice Wesley, Wesley's faith in her. Before, you know, he left her and he came back and he found that she was engaged and failed in showing faithfulness to her, right? Belief in her. Here, she's already married, right? She's gone through a wedding ceremony and and he makes light of it. He's confident, right? You know, she 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 obviously didn't really marry him. That's not how it goes. Despite the fact that we have no reason, we have you know, as Nancy's pointing out, we had there's no mechanism that we are introduced to by which he could know that technicality about the wedding ceremony, right? Um, so um, uh, yeah, and, and Mary Rose, you're right. He's, he doesn't certainly doesn't insult or yell at Buttercup like in the book. In fact, we see almost a reversal of that. Remember, it's the tying of him up. Right, Wesley is yelling at her, and you know, using that sort of disturbing misogynistic language, um, when uh, you know, sort of commanding her around like she's a slave. When he's command, you know, I, you know, when when she's commanding, he's commanding her to tie Humperdinck up. Right here, instead, he indulges her strength. Right, make it as tight as you like. And we hear from the hall him crying out in pain. She not not only does she not hesitate to tie him herself. Um, she seems to appreciate being given the indulgence, you know, the, the sort of permission to hurt him as much as she likes, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, um, yeah, good. Um, Carolyn, I agree. It is cool that Buttercup keeps her crown. I was really noticing that just watching it through this past time when she ducks under her under his arm. It seems uh, very logical that she would take off her crown, but but she doesn't. She remains the princess, right? Even after, uh, uh, this, because again, she, she, she remains crowned, right? Um, she's still our fairy tale princess, even though she's turning away from being an actual princess. Um, and of course the final point here at the end that he's, they're going to leave him alone with his cowardice, right? He's not the great hunter in the book. There's at least the chance. And in fact, the later events, you know, his pursuit of them seems in fact to bear out the idea the, the claim, or at least to make plausible the claim that Humperdinck makes that he knew that he was bluffing and was just just submitted so that he could have the pleasure of hunting them down later, right? There's no question of Humperdinck taking the pleasure of hunting them down later, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, think about the, you know, sort of the, the to the pain speech, right? Throughout that speech, there is this conflict. Think of how the dramatic irony works. Again, we know why Wesley is lying in the bed and not embracing her back, but she doesn't, right? Nobody else knows that. She doesn't know that. Humperdinck doesn't know that, but we know that, right? And there's this conflict. So there's the conflict between his tone and our knowledge of his weakness. We, um, as... Uh, um, who was talking about that? About the, the sort of the intensity of... Um, 
are focusing in on his uh, on his eyes. Carolyn Morehouse was pointing about that. Um, the the camera sort of focuses in on Wesley and his eyes as he's bluffing, uh, you know, in his to the pain speech. But again, we know he can barely stand, right? He couldn't even nod for himself. Fezzik had to had to move his head, right? Um, and uh, so the question is: Is his bluff going to be called? Um, but it, uh, you know, he rises, and the, you know, the the music. I love the music. Notice the the violins start when Humperdinck dramatically throws his scabbard down and says "to the death," and the violins start. Right, the tense violin music, and then just cuts off when Wesley says "wrong to the pain," and the, I love that sideways look that Humperdinck does when he's like, "I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't know." Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's. Uh, um, again, it's there's 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 comedy here, but the comedy is chiefly at Humperdinck's expense. He is made much more of a fop. He is made um, the butt of all the jokes. We get no tension between Buttercup and Wesley. We get no undermining of Buttercup's character. We get none of the emphasis on his imminent death. Instead, we just see him miraculously, you know, miracle miracle uh, 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 miracle max miraculously overcoming his weakness, right? Overcoming uh, the and rising and appearing ready to fight. Um, our ending seems to be shaping up very differently. So, let's look at the actual ending. And of course, in doing so, we'll be returning to the frame as well. Two more clips. I'm almost done. <laughs> Thank you for being patient. of the prince's table and there they were four white horses and i thought there are four of us if we ever find the lady hello lady so i took them with me in case we ever bumped into each other i guess we just did isaac you did something right no way i wanted it go to my head strange. I have been in the revenge business so long. Now that it's over, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. Have you ever considered piracy? You make a wonderful Dread Pirate Roberts. The road to freedom. As dawn arose, Wesley and Buttercup knew they were safe. A wave of love swept over them. And as they reached for each other... What? What? Now, it's kissing again. You don't want to hear that. Mm, I don't mind so much. Okay. Since the invention of the kiss, there have been five kisses that were rated the most passionate, the most pure. This one left them all behind. The end. I love that little smile from, from, from the boy at the end. Um, 
Okay, several. First of all, there's no arguing that. I don't think there can be any argument with the idea that Fezzik kind of gets shortchanged in this movie. I mean, Inigo is gets much more the spotlight. It's much more evenly divided between them. Um, one thing I am willing to grant the book over the film in an unqualified way is the greater development of Fezzik's story. No, uh, no questions. No questions. Um, but what does this ending give us? This ending gives us closure, for one thing, and notice not just closure in that Humperdinck the coward is tied up, unlikely to escape, and less likely to do anything if he did. There's no threat of pursuit. There's no... Uh, Inigo's wound seems to be fine now, as a couple of you are pointing out. As soon as he jumps out of the second-story window uh, and, and is riding a horse, two things, both of which would seem hard to do with your intestines falling out, um, he's fine. But that's that's, uh, that's okay. We're good. Uh, and... Um, but but closure even for his story, right? The idea of him of him uh, um, of him taking up piracy, right? Um, him bringing up the fact that he doesn't now he doesn't know what to do with his life now that it's over, um, and Wesley tying up both his own career at how he's going to retire from being the Dread Pirate Roberts and what Inigo is going to be able to you know the, the the fruitful career that Inigo has to look forward to. Um, that's um, uh, that's really, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, but far from challenging, far from questioning, the, I mean, you know, somebody was saying, uh, who was it was saying that we're getting the barber's ending here? No question that we're getting, um, we're getting the barber's ending um, in the sense, but we're getting it without the satire that Morgan Stern put in it, right? We are getting this, the ending of the, of the, of the story is, I think, the most unabashed um, indulgence in the fairy tale frame that we get anywhere in the entire story. I mean, first of all, Buttercup's Fall, right? Several of you are pointing to this. It's a, it's a moment, we get this special musical theme going, um, this moment is a is a pronounced moment. She's going to jump out to Fezzik, and you know the slow motion, f- like very unrealistic. Fo- like, there's it's like why is this on a dark backdrop? Why do we have this like? And the only thing in the world is Buttercup as she gracefully in slow motion falls down to Fezzik. Um, it's uh, there's this like un- 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 unapologetic. Um, uh, uh, sort of luxuriating in the beauty of this moment, right? The beauty of Buttercup as they escape, the the beauty of the you know the 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 the, the princess escaping and the the fairy tale ending uh, uh, coming up. I mean, it's uh, it's it's now. I do think Gerald. I do think we do get some closure for Fezzik, um, and here it is. Ready? Don't take it the wrong way. Here it is. There's the closure for Fezzik. Um, I'm not suggesting a warped love triangle between Fezzik, Wesley, and Buttercup, but what I am suggesting is he's found a... Fa- Hello, lady, right? He's found a family. Um, and, uh, again, his story is is underdeveloped. But remember, the development we got of his story in the earlier part of the film that we talked about at the beginning of class last time is that he's he's like a child, right? We see him in this warped parental relationship with Fezzik as sort of or with with Vizzini, sorry, as a sort of a stand-in for Fezzik's own parents. And now those um 
um, uh, those that parental figure is being replaced by positive parental figures in Buttercup and uh, Wesley, presumably, um, especially Buttercup. Um, and the the sort of reversal, how she's like the mother figure and he's the... but, but yet he's cradling her uh, like a baby, right? It's it's really... it's, it's kind of... it's kind of cool. Um, so I still would argue that they do actually... the, the film does try to give Fezzik's character closure, even though um, his, his story is itself so much less uh, emphasized and less developed. But then, again, talk about indulgence in the fairy tale ending. I mean, look at this. This? I mean, are you serious right now? We get an actual painting, right? Obviously a painting that they're writing off into. I mean, like, like, look at this. That's not real. Like, this might be real, but that's not real. Um, you know, and then we get the, you know, the kiss from horseback, uh, you know. Anyway, um, you know, with them riding off into the sunset, complete indulgence in that frame. And then the boy accepting it, right? Um, the boy not even, now dropping even his resistance to the kissing. And this is where we end up, along with the boy, right? Um... We're done. Last last shot of the frame. See, I told you we weren't going to have time for Buttercup's baby. Now I think you ought to go to sleep. Okay. 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 All right. Shalom. Grandpa? Maybe you could come over and read it again to me tomorrow. As you wish. Notice how we start that uh, you know, the final shot there in the clip with the sort of the bumbling grandfather, right? Patting himself over, make sure he's got his glasses, make sure he's got his key. All right, all right, right. Um, we get a reminder of the distance that we saw at the beginning, right? These these two, although they're now sort of in the same place, that they're, they're not buddies. The big generation gap that was there at the beginning is still there, right? Um, but yet now, of course, the situation has changed. And the last line of the film being, as you wish conveyed from the grandfather to the grandson is just beautiful, right? Um, we see not only, of course, the ex, you know the expression of affection, but notice how that works. It's the expression of, uh, you know, he's saying, I love you, to his grandson, but his grandson would probably not accept that kind of a mushy expression of, uh, of, of, of affection from his grandfather, right? But he can now say, as you wish. So now there's a secret language um, developed from this story between him and his grandson, right? They're, they're sharing something. This was a special book, right, that, that I shared with your father, and now I'm going to share with you, right? And we see now them sharing that thing together. Um, the final note emphasizing the love between the grandfather and the boy. It is a true love story, right? It's a true love story 
not undermined between Wesley and Buttercup. And then in the end, of course, we see that the whole frame has been the real true love story between the grandfather and his grandson. And it's just absolutely adorable, right? As uh, Patricia points out, and this time the grandfather didn't pinch his cheek. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Um, uh, And Brian, I agree. The the As You Wish at the end is is such an awesome use of the frame narrative. I, I completely... I completely agree. Um, good. Nancy points out the parallel, how he goes through a door like the characters go through the gate uh, on, on horseback, and there's a light on the other side like them going off into the, in, into the sunset. Um, yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's just so well done. But again, you know, so where do, we, where do we end up? Where does the film leave us? And where am I finally going to let you go at the end of what I believe, what Ed Powell tells me is the longest Mythgard Academy class session we've ever had? Um, uh, I think this film accomplishes something really genuinely remarkable. It presents a fairy tale. It gets us to laugh all the way through. I mean... You can you can go through and you know we we can go through these clips a second time and instead focus entirely on the way that it's satirizing not only the sort of the fairy tale uh, uh, conventions but 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 fantasy movie conventions and we talked a little bit about some of that but there's more of it that we could talk about. Um, we're never allowed to be, as viewers, we're never allowed to be fully in a state of secondary belief. We never just lose ourselves in this story. The insistence of the frame and the, the, the interruptions of the frame uh, never let us forget that, right? That we're hearing a story, a story being read by the, fa- by the grandfather to the son, or to the, to the grandson. Um, so again, so we never can totally lose ourselves in the story, but rather than undermining the story by... Uh, keeping that frame in front of us and by inviting us to laugh even at, you know, or at least around, you know, some of the main heroes uh, all the way through, yet we're not pushed back. There's, there's, there's none of that, that sort of tone of bitterness that we get. Um, so often, I think, in the book, um, we don't end up laughing at the story. Although we're laughing all the way through, we don't laugh at the story. It, the film accomplishes better than any other thing I know of um, any other book or film that I've known, you know, the, the balance that it achieves between inviting you to laugh at it, right, sort of making fun of itself, not taking itself tremendously seriously, and yet conveying a serious story, conveying a serious emotional effect. I think it does, it accomplishes those things really, really remarkably. And the way that it culminates in the frame, seeing you know, the story really means something. Right? So what if it's not true? So what if it's kind of artificial? So what if it's detached from reality? So what if it's escapist? Right? Um, you know, yes, we're detached from reality. We know that we are detached from reality. We never mistake the story of Florin for reality. But that doesn't matter. The story still means something. It still has power. We see it have power with the grandfather and grandson. It's okay if, even though we kind of hold ourselves aloof from it because we're reminded that it's just a story and in some ways a kind of a silly story and in many ways a sort of over-the-top story, that's okay. All that stuff is kind of beside the point. We invest in it. Just as it draws together the grandfather and the grandson, so we are drawn into its emotional impact. I think it's, uh, um, it's very, very remarkable in what it, in what it accomplishes here. Um, all right. 
I'm gonna let you guys go finally at last. Thank you so much for joining me again. We're gonna we're gonna take I'm gonna be traveling again soon. We're gonna take a two week break and then we're gonna come back with uh, the Laser Beleriant. Um, be on the lookout. I'll be we'll be posting through social media and on our webpage and uh, Mythgard Academy uh, uh, stuff. The uh, schedule that you know the page assignment for the beginning of the Laser Beleriand uh, and the new webinar link and everything else. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks for bearing with me here tonight in our marathon class, and I will see you guys for the Lays of Beleriand in a couple weeks. Good night now.